Three, two, one. Bazinga. That was my intro. I forgot to think of one uh, and I wanted to get started. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think I've done that before. Really? What do you mean, really? It's my catchphrase. <laughs> I'm Adam from Your Movie Sucks. Okay. This is Sardonicast. Hello. <laughs> I'm Ralph the Movie Maker. I'm Ralph the Movie Maker. I'm Alex from IHE and uh, we've got a special guest here. Do you want to introduce yourself, Joel? Yes, uh, I'm Joel Haver. I'm a YouTuber guy and uh, I'm here to talk about movies. Mm-hmm. I think you're selling yourself cool. short. I think you're a bit yeah. more of a U- than a YouTuber guy. I think that if people hear YouTubers, they don't they don't think of like because you're you're legit like kind of a filmmaker. I would I would classify you as a filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I guess a big part of my filmmaking is releasing on YouTube and yeah. kind of blurring that line between YouTuber and filmmaker because what I release is personal, but it's also presented artfully. So I think it's. Like there is a very personal element to YouTube that yeah. being a YouTuber yeah, it cool. is presenting yourself and mm-hmm. uh, being yeah. a filmmaker is kind of artfully obscuring yourself. And I think I, I try to blend those two. David F. Yeah, Sandberg, cool. the director of Shazam, is a YouTuber, you know, uh-huh. mm, I, I, I uh, listened to your guys' podcast with him. That yeah. was great. Yeah, yeah, awesome. yeah that, was, that was a fun one. Uh, I've directed yeah, films yeah. myself and put them on YouTube, like Candy yeah. Andy and The High and whatever. So mm-hmm. I've done that myself. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't, I didn't know before this podcast about you know your film work. Really, <laughs> oh, that's cool. Well, I'm glad to introduce you. Um, so your channel really blew up really quickly in like a way too fast actually yeah it was way too fast in a way it took a while to go way too fast because i I spent a good i spent Mm -hmm. a good like two years doing weekly uploads with hundreds of views on each upload and uh then november uh 2019 i released uh an animation that uh kind of began the snowball effect that took Mm -hmm. me from like three thousand subscribers to a million and counting yeah, in like two or three months, I think, which was <laughs> was a whirlwind. Uh, mm-hmm. It felt like a lot of hard work paying off, but yeah, it happened very fast. Once it happened, I'd say. So, so your animations was that was was the first animation that you'd even posted? Just the one that like blew up? Like as soon as you tried that format, it was immediately successful, or? No, I, no, I did five beforehand. And uh, it's funny because, you know, I was doing it for no money, reaching just like a handful of people for a long time. And uh, I, I would do an animation every couple months just because they took so much more work than my live action stuff. And uh, that I just didn't see it being worth the time and effort when I was still already struggling. So uh, I'm just glad I stuck to it because the sixth one is the one that took off. Awesome. But uh, uh yeah, I guess that's a lesson in uh, trying new things and not like giving up the second the new thing doesn't work the first time. You know, yeah. I, think, I think that that's a valuable lesson. Yeah, I enjoyed that video where you broke down the process of how you actually achieved that kind of rotoscoping effect. Like, a, mm-hmm. you know, like a, choosing to actually put that information out there and not hide it for your own gain. Is yeah, like a, that's very it's really cool. It's, it's cool to the whole YouTube sharing mm. mentality, you know, where it's all about like teaching each other. And propping everyone up. This, yeah, it looks. It still looks like a tedious process, though. To be fair, I, like I've thought about trying to pull that off before, but man, <laughs> I don't see a whole lot of copycats. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen a handful of people do it, and there's two, two or three people who have actually have like started a successful channel from like using the style. Okay, but um, cool. I think I saw a lot of people just doing like quick memes and little videos with it, and I. I 
I think what I did differently that really made it connect with people is I made the tutorial fun. I think there's a lot of uh-huh. information out there right now on how yeah. to create things and do things and none of it is fun and it feels like homework. It feels like going to school. And, uh, you, you know, even For the sure. team that made the tool that does the, uh, AI rotoscoping, e- even their tutorials very like bog standard presented at, um, I think just like making the tutorial fun and also a product of what the tutorial will create, you know, like, cause the video itself is animated. So I think that mm-hmm. was just something that, cause that did really well and it, it did inspire a lot of people to at least take a swing at it. And, um, I think, I think that's what, uh, kind of bridged that divide. It showed people a tool that at first would seem tedious or at first would mm-hmm. seem inaccessible. Then it showed them like, Oh wait, I understand how to do this. Do I want to do this? Okay. Then I can do it. You know? Yeah. I think it, it, it really helped separate you from the crowd. I think because there's a lot of people making short films, skits, etc., on YouTube. And it, you know, people don't really have like a way of just being like, Oh, I want to latch onto this one or this one. Um, it's really hard to get noticed doing that material yeah, like that's the first mm-hmm. that's exactly. the first thing yeah. i yeah. ever did on youtube was like skit videos and even when there were only like 10 people watching youtube it was difficult to get noticed by the youtube show, you know <laughs> so. well, like my <laughs> yeah. re- my films got attention because my reviews like my reviews mm-hmm. got yeah. views, and then people watch my films like, yeah that's derivative I content yeah. i don't know if you've ever heard me talk about that but like when you're making mm. content that's already attached to things that people are already searching up so like a film review is derivative Mm -hmm. content or even like youtube commentary or song covers or anything like that then it's a lot easier to get noticed because that's just inherently how the algorithm functions so when you're creating like original works it's really difficult to get noticed unfortunately it's it's almost decentivizing like original ideas which sucks but it's you know if you want to get successful on the platform you have to like learn and understand that like and if you do have original things that you're doing you might want to consider either having a separate channel or incorporate your channel in some way like oh if you make original music maybe do some song covers every once in a while or you know Otherwise, yeah. nobody's going to see it is the problem. I'm somebody who has an absolutely stupid variety of stuff on one mm-hmm. channel. And what what I noticed is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there will be some spillover. Because once the animations took off, that was like what the algorithm would recommend. You know, like yeah. you're saying, it's like yeah. it knew people liked those. So whenever I made a new one, it showed those to way more people than all my other uploads. And um I don't know how they detect it's an animation. Maybe it's, it scans the thumbnail or the video, but they just know and There's they show ways. it to more people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it might just be it the amount of people me. interacting <laughs> with it from the thumbnail from the moment of upload too. Like it might, mm, it, yeah. it, it might not even be like a visual representation. It, it could be just like, oh, this is how other people interacted with this versus the other ones, right? And then it pushes it. Yeah, yeah th- that makes sense too. Uh, I think but I have like, you know, I have a lot of little sketch, uh, live action sketches. I have some personal documentary stuff. I have some, uh, you know, stuff where I just sit and talk to the camera, stuff where I do, uh, you know, uh, uh, feature length films. And when my channel took off, there was the obvious like animations are doing the best, but there was like a significant spillover into the other stuff. And I think it speaks to some mm-hmm. level of curiosity and people wanting to check out people's other work and people oh, having yeah. that patience. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not the majority of people, but it's enough people that you notice. Like I, I, the film, my film, pretend that you love me. It had a thousand views for, uh, you know, eight months. And then after, uh, 
my channel took off, it worked its way up to half a million. And the fact that like people who found me through goofy, weird video game related animations would take a step aside and be like, oh, is this an hour and Mm -hmm. a half something? And then like actually stick with it. it, I, I think there's more credit we can give the audiences on youtube than youtube wants to give them mm-hmm. and uh, i i think youtube's actively working against them most of the time but yeah <laughs> they I, I guess it's just pushing back on the front page to some degree help, like some of these films should be on the front page oh, sorry adam yeah sorry i interrupted you you go for it yeah like but what, I, what you were saying about like the derivative content too like yeah like my reviews are like derivative content or whatever because it's like popular movies but then like i make my films or whatever like sauce like sauce Mm -hmm. isn't based on like that's an original idea basically it's kind of like a parody of the godfather like mildly but like but like that garnered views i think because like people have the same sense of humor as me and -hmm. so they like clicked on that video thinking like this might be a film i enjoy so like i think it does work in that way like putting it on your your channel yeah if you think about it, you can start off creating de- derivative content of something like a film or a pre-existing piece of media, but then other videos on your channel that are not that are actually still derivative content because they're derivative off of your brand, which is now something that people search yeah. for. Right. Uh, true. So like I wouldn't be able to mm-hmm. like make film festival videos talking about like a talking about like a, a random indie movie, foreign movie that nobody's ever heard of like and still have people watch them if I didn't make meme videos. You know, like if I didn't cover mm-hmm. like the larger topics and shit on Suicide Squad and all that, you know, um, <laughs> I guess there is that compromise and there's ways to make it less of a compromise and more on your end. I, th- I think if you really refuse the algorithm at times, you could kind of mend it to your liking. Yeah. And you get more popularity, too. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. My most viewed video is a movie that nobody had heard of before I, I reviewed it. Right, cool cat. Is that the frozen one? Oh, cool cat. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The frozen one's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, frozen one's yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. in my yeah, in my top videos, it's all things I'm passionate about. I never, I never really did anything to be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm compromising by doing something I'm not interested in to get it. It would always be like, oh, I can incorporate the algorithm, but still be passionate about what I'm talking about. It's just a matter of choosing mm-hmm. what your subjects are. So yeah. I guess before we get into, I, I want to talk a bit about the films you've made, because Alex saw one and I saw one. But before we get into that, I just wanted to point out something about your animations. Is that something that I really respect about them, especially when you were talking about the process, is that there's a quality that I think a lot more people who want to create things need to have. And that is to be able to release and publish something, even when it's not perfect. So in terms of like the animation process you know that there are those like glitches every once in a while, right? And you could yeah. go frame by frame. You could fix every single one of them, but then they would never get released. You know, they would get released like once a, every like three months or something, right? Um, or yeah. once every like year. Like it would just make it so that you people couldn't enjoy it as much. When if you look at it and you look at it and see the mistakes, it kind of adds personality to it. It doesn't take away from the core experience. You're yeah, still getting the core experience of the piece of art out there to people. And that's a quality that I think more people need to be able to have, especially myself, because I'm a hyper perfectionist in some ways that other people will never notice, but I just still do it anyway. It's something mm. I need to work on. So I really, really respect that. Yeah, I think 
Thank you for that. Uh, I think imperfection is actually super related to uh, what we're going to talk about with faces and John Cassavetes. Mm-hmm. I just think uh, sh- uh, being being open to show that you're like not perfect is so much more interesting than than like hiding all your flaws and like wasting your time like making something like five percent better. You know, and uh, I. Yeah, I, I think there's a quality to my stuff in general that's very improvised and loose, and it's almost like a perfect marrying with that tool that it is so glitchy and so inconsistent because because my stuff is already so almost like falling apart at the seams at times. Mm-hmm. And uh, I th- I think uh, that th- that uh, animation style kind of found me in a very uh in a very uh perfect i don't know what the word would be in a marriage or something like a, yeah. a perfectly married with my already developing style yeah it's serendipitous in a way mm-hmm. yeah. so alex you saw i don't even what i, yeah, I was drowning in potential okay um, mm. yeah because i saw it was uploaded fairly recently so oh how long ago it was 2021 december 3rd so i guess it's not too recent yeah. but two months ago yeah yeah, How was so, it? <laughs> I didn't yeah. see that one. <laughs> I, I I had a really good time. I really enjoyed it. I find the the setting of LA just to be a great a great kind of landscape to explore these kind of characters. You know, whether it's just mm. that gig trying to trying to get an acting gig and the the kind of desperation that can come from it, and mm-hmm. it's just a yeah you know, an, an, an expressive setting that you did a really good job with and. Um, what I was really drawn to, though, was once I finished the movie, I scrolled down to the comments and saw the that it was entirely improvised. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very curious about that process because I, I, I figured from the style there was a lot of improv going on, but I didn't realize it was, as you say, 100% improv. And I'm just curious about how you managed to carve something that, you know, is tangible from that improv kind of style because it's it's so like loose in its structure and is that from like a history of improv have you always been into that uh, what was your approach to that whole that creative process because i mean I, I i just like meticulous planning and and that kind of side of filmmaking so i'm always interested hearing about mm. the improv and the chaos and beauty that comes from that yeah so, so Drowning in Potential for a little context is uh, my le- latest uh, feature-length film I did with Dax Flame. You might oh, know yeah. him from old YouTube days. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I came to LA for my first time uh, in October. And as I was driving in, I was on a van trip across the country. And I, I messaged Dax, who I had done some like... He'd been in some of my animations. And uh, I'd been in some of his videos. And I messaged him. I said, "Hey, I, I want. I'm coming to LA. Let's make a movie." And he he was so down. And the first day I got there, we just dove right into making it. The improv process, specifically for that movie, is uh, y- you find scenes and then you kind of puzzle it out from there. So what happened is we have this opening scene, which is a, a audition. It's like him filming a self tape, mm-hmm. and I'm his friend talking mm-hmm. him through it. And uh, we worked that out like pretty well right away i'm like i have this like idea of like something that could be the opening which is you recording a self-tape because i was pulling from my experience and my i have a i came to la with a lot of biases and a lot were confirmed 
but you know, I, I have a very <laughs> <Yeah>. anti Hollywood <laughs> sort of mindset. Uh, but um, yeah. and then Dax is somebody who's very uh, well, well in that world, and he he's like ha- dealt with the rejection. He's dealt with the struggles of trying to you know make it in L.A. and um. I just felt like that was a perfect kicking off point for us. I'm like, what if we just show a struggling actor trying his damnedest? And, um, and from there, what you do to improvise a feature is you essentially just make like one scene at a time, plot it on some mental timeline in your mm-hmm. head and say like, okay, so we filmed this scene where we did an audition. We filmed this one later in the movie where he goes on a date. We need to bridge that. Like, okay, what happens between then and there? What gets his character's mental state from like, okay to like a point of despair that he is in this later scene. And then you shoot scenes to kind mm. of like bridge those divides. And you, you'd be surprised how like organically conflicts like arise mm. when you're doing that. If you're trying to like push a character from one point to another, you organically have to create conflicts and resolve conflicts and uh, maybe don't resolve other, other ones. And, um, and it, it really is a process I've done at least for i i have nine features on my channel and eight of them were totally improvised and it, it it's a process that i've just fallen wow. in love with cuz it kind of harkens back to what you would do as a kid grabbing a home movie camera with your friends you know you're not you're not doing pre-production you're not sitting down writing a script you're not like getting caught up in your ideas and you're not getting writer's mm-hmm. block you're you're literally the step one is you film something and then it's like okay i i have something so like this is a project now and uh it's just very uh encouraging and i think there's a lot of life in it and i think there, there's a lot of uh and it, most people who come came into dax and i's film were like people who uh, there, there were some people like we have some YouTube cameos, people who have acted before, mm-hmm. but um, a lot of them were people who have never acted before. And I always encourage people if you're working with non-actors, give them a lot of like space to be themselves and give them mm-hmm. a lot of space to, to just like mm. exist in the scene because people are good at existing. Like mm-hmm. people are really good at like every day we're improvising. Every day you're having conversations. Every True. day you're 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 problem solving. And what people aren't good yeah. at is pretending to be someone they're not. Yeah. That that's a skill. You know, the skill side of acting is getting lost in a character that's maybe different, uh, quite different from yourself. But most people, if you just say like. Okay, so this is the context. This is the point A. We want to get to this point B by the end of the scene. Let's find. Let's find it. They'll be funny. They'll be like. They'll they'll find the scene with you, and you know, because sitting around with your friends, you're always making each other laugh and doing little bits and doing little characters Mm -hmm. in your own way. And uh, that's really the process. Each scene is improvised, and then it's uh plotted out on this sort of rough mental timeline uh and then you're like okay we need to get here then finally you'll find an ending and you'll be like okay this is definitely the ending you know like we came around Mm -hmm. we 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 reached some sort of statement and uh i'm not somebody who crafts things with themes in mind but i think themes also emerge yeah if you're being honest and you're being like truthfully you and you're actually talking to something that interests you or you're passionate mm-hmm. about i think things will organically arise and um yeah i i, th- I think uh it, it sounds a lot 
crazier than it is when you say like a feature film was improvised just because the alternative is what people are used to. Mm-hmm. But I, I think what people are already doing on YouTube with vlogs and stuff like that is they're telling stories out of their everyday lives and they're making things exciting that yeah. seem mundane to the outsider. And that that's what like improv filmmaking is. It's winging it and piecing it together. And it, it, even incorporating your life is an option. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. My my work gets very a uh, hybrid documentary fiction at times, yeah. And um, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that that's something I've always gravitated towards because it's just not. It gives you no opportunity to not create, you know. Hmm. Yeah. What you mentioned about improvising with non-actors, I guess conceptually, it's probably a lot more difficult to get a non-actor to read lines than it would be mm-hmm. to just you know, let them exist in a scene. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I've done a, one project I did that is sort of the epitome of that idea is uh, I did this, my second feature film was called 31 Days in Marshall, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And it was this project where uh, my friend and I, we, we went to a town we'd never been to. And we found it just because an artist, we, we announced the project, we kickstarted it for something cheap, like 1500 or something, it, but just enough to have food and gas. And we, we released it and an artist was like, hey, come stay in my trailer in my town. I, I live in a cool town. So the the project was we lived in a town for 31 days and made a like feature length narrative film with the strangers we met in the town. So, you know, we spent 31 days meeting people mm-hmm. and being like, hey, you want to act in a movie? And everyone in that movie is just like people who have never acted before and uh it's a goofy movie it, it, ha- it has some good moments of heart though and at the end of the day like if you it was the the epitome of that because these people just like came to life on camera mm-hmm. in a way that they, they'd come to life if you were hanging out with them yeah and, and you know we, we gave them a lot of room to be who they actually are and a lot of people pretty well just played themselves or, or at least an exaggerated version of themselves. Yeah. And um, yeah, that, that I, I love that project. And I think that's like my biggest proof for being like, hey, this is how you film with What's that one called again? You know, I'll put that on my watch 31 list. Days in uh, Marshall, North Carolina. It's a couple years old, but I, okay. I, I still think the, the uh, project is quite interesting just for its conception. Awesome. I will add that to my list. With uh, So I saw... Pretend that you love me, and I mm. really enjoyed it. And I want to ask, like, have you considered or have you submitted uh, any of your films to like film festivals, or is that something you would want to do? Do you feel like that would take away like the YouTube kind of audience thing? I've sort of become radicalized through my own work mm-hmm. to uh, kind of want to pave my own path, and. And the reason for that is I think film festivals, I know you're a huge fan of film festivals and Mm -hmm. uh, you guys talk about going to Sundance and all this. And I think they they serve a very like very deliberate purpose in the filmmaking world that uh, I think the smaller ones are uh, can be quite like fun Mm -hmm. venues. But it's when it gets to that Sundance can kind of level that I – it becomes a marketplace in ways and it forces filmmaking to be sold. And, you know, you bring a film to a festival with the intention of selling it to True. someone else. And mm-hmm. I, I, I just want to, I, I see YouTube and I see this world of 
like owning your art at least to some extent like of mm-hmm. course you're throwing it on on google and like google's a mega corporation but at least yeah, you, sti- exactly. you still you still <laughs> you still own the rights to your work online uh-huh. right the online thing is huge i feel like you can mm. put your work not just on youtube you can put it on amazon you can put it on mm-hmm. vimeo you can put it yeah. on all these places now, you know. Yeah, YouTube's just one of the options. Yeah. When I was talking to Jim Cummings at Sundance, this was, unfortunately, I forgot to remind him to bring this up during the interview. So this was before the interview that made it onto YouTube. But he was telling me that, like, retaining the rights to Thunder Road and, like, self-distributing it, distributing it was, like, the best financial decision he ever made. Because um, mm-hmm. it did find 100%. its audience and it did kind of blow up in kind of like a sleeper hit way in, in France. And then, you know, later internationally. In France. But yeah, it was really like, it was doing well in France. <laughs> That's interesting. And, um, <laughs> and then on, uh, on like digital media, you know, like he, it wound up blowing up and. Yeah. You know, like that's what happened with Lover. I got distribution offers for it, but I never took them because I wanted to keep the rights to it. Yeah. And that worked out for me because I kept all the money, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's good because I can make other films with that. Yeah. Sometimes I think, um, filmmakers are faced with like the i guess fear of missing out idea of like well if you know if you get bought then that can distribute it to more people and then that might not you, you know that might also not only give you more money but it might help kickstart your career it might help give you mainstream legitimization and you know maybe potentially mm-hmm. oscars or something like that it really depends on the film but um i've always loved the idea of retaining the rights to my own material uh, so I'm kind of caught in this, like, you know, my music, I'm caught in this situation where it's like, I know I could get more exposure and also better quality production, you know, better recordings work with like actual producers if I were to like sign with a label. But at the same time, like, I don't, I don't want some other company sending people copyright claims for things with my name on it when like my whole, <laughs> you know, like I would feel like such a hypocrite. I want to be able to have that control over something. <laughs> Um, and so I guess I'm, I'm curious, Joel, do you ever, um, have you ever considered or have you released any kind of like Blu-ray physical media or anything? Do you think that's something that you'd, uh, you know, work, uh, yeah, your way into doing? I, I would definitely do it on top of having it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like having my stuff for free online. And mm-hmm. I think a big reason for that is this film festival thing where film festivals, really makes sense when your film is a mega investment you know when your film like cost a hundred thousand to a million dollars it's like sure of course you want to sell it because it's like you get a you get a lump sum and it's like okay we covered the funding and um but my films cost nothing you know pretend that you love me cost i say zero dollars like maybe i yeah. took the sub- <laughs> maybe i took the subway I took the subway here and there bucks. yeah yeah 50 yeah like King candy's like 50 bucks or like Lover's mm. actually ten thousand dollars. But yeah, like even like Whiplash, like that was like two million dollars. Like that's a crazy amount of money, and and that's considered like not a low budget film. Yeah, it, it is kind of a crazy, uh, uh, weird thing that we've accepted film to be this uh, inherently expensive medium. When when music, you know, there's jam sessions in music. Like film needs its jam sessions. Film mm-hmm. needs its like you know gathering around a bonfire and just doing it for the love of it. Film yeah. needs its like, like unplugged album. It, unplugged album, yeah. and it needs the, the the simple version of itself. And we've seemed to like kind of bastardize that to the point that's like 
yeah, a million dollars is the simple version of it rather than like a million dollars is still <laughs> more money than you'll ever have than anyone in your life will ever have. Yeah. French yeah. Dispatch, like that was an indie film. That was like, yeah. how much did that movie cost, right? Like, probably There's a huge lot. actors in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, $20 million probably. Like, you yeah. Know. And I, I get in a lot of debates with people over this because I am very radical in this way, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think uh, expensive films are like evil. I don't think they, yeah. no, uh, I don't think they, 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 they also, I love <laughs> Raimi Spider-Man, best trilogy ever. I love that. Hell yeah. Um, yeah. I, but um, yeah, I think they definitely serve their purpose. And I think where, where they become problematic is when they begin to discourage people from even trying because they think that's the only way. You know, when, when mm-hmm. young filmmakers like see that, like, you know, I, oh, this cost a million dollars. Well, I guess I'll make a movie when I can get a million dollars. Or, mm-hmm. or when young filmmakers submit their like cheap project to festivals and they get rejected and then they feel like they have nowhere to put it. They're like, oh God, I, yeah. I wasted all this time. It's a waste. And it's like, you no, know, you grew and you could still put it on YouTube and yeah. maybe people will love it or maybe it, it is not that great and you could grow and make another one. But yeah. I think, my problem with festivals and why I haven't submitted to festivals since my first, I think since my second feature, 31 days, I tried that out a few, but, um, it just is like so much more freeing to like be your own, be your own advocate and, and be your own, like, you know, not yeah. waiting for some anonymous screener to give you the thumbs up or thumbs down. Cause <laughs> at the mm-hmm. end of the day, that's what oh, the festival that's process, what... yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's what it is. You're waiting six months for, because you know they're employees they're people who are paid to watch the movies as they come in and you you could be the sixth movie they watch that day and they could be on their phone during it they could be on their laptop there you know you you don't know like how qualified this person is and you know there's movies i hate that most people love and like if i was if i was the screener for those movies i'd give them the thumbs down and then they wouldn't reach people so there is this (laughs) very Mm. arbitrary gatekeeping of like you know it's like okay what screener did you get this day which programmer did you get this day what you know did you submit it to the right festival at the right time and Mm -hmm. and and then most of the big festivals where your film would actually achieve this large-scale distribution you want uh already have most of their spots filled you know they have relationships with like acclaimed filmmakers they have relationships with distributors and stuff like that that you know the major spots are going to be filled and there might be 10 to 20 spots for like genuinely like new artists to break through and we're in a world where tens of thousands of people are making movies so yeah i just think we we need to accept other gateways if we're gonna encourage artists to not give up and if we're gonna encourage artists to you know keep creating uh <laughs> beyond the, the system that is giving them the yes or no thank you so much that was a great answer yeah yeah and i i agree with a lot of what you say i still love film festivals i understand that there's like obviously a business element to it part mm-hmm. of the reason why i brought that up is just I, I guess to say like I think that when I'm when I watched Pretend That You Love Me, I I was thinking just like, okay, like this would this would do well at a film festival. That's you know, like this this mm-hmm. is sure this is up there in terms of like you could totally submit this and there's a bunch mm-hmm. of people that would fucking love it. And I love the idea of self distributing on on YouTube that too. Mm. And I, I think that it's actually great that you are 
kind of being a rebel in this sense because Mm -hmm. in my mind what i'm thinking practically about this like divide between legitimacy of self-publishing on youtube versus doing the festival or you know even larger routes than that the discrepancy only exists because (laughs) like there isn't as much of a market for legitimate content of self-distribution on youtube right and so if you continue Mm -hmm. to pave the way for that if you continue to release your material there i think your audience i mean your audience already has found you but i think more people will find you that way i think Mm. you're definitely not done growing and uh yeah i'm excited to see where it goes yeah what you're saying about the film festivals like to make a quick rebuttal like that's the big festivals you're talking about like yeah 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 like there's smaller festivals that you could probably submit to and if you submit to a bunch of them you know, there there will be some that like your film if it's a good film, which it sounds like they are, right? So like, I, like I submitted my films to like a bunch of festivals like when I was younger, and one of them got into like a smaller festival, and like you know, I it did really well. Like I won an award for it. You know, that was awesome. The program director Don Cato, like he gave me an award for it. Mm-hmm. So like you know, that's it's it was cool. It's a good experience. So you know, don't discount it entirely. Like I get what yeah. you're saying about the million dollar movies. Like those are. I don't even comprehend those, honestly. Like, like those are so out of my league. <laughs> I don't even understand. Like, and we've talked about, um, you know, like people obviously they're in the, the positions like already, like they're kind of privileged, and that's how they they get to make those like million dollar films in the first place. If you look up mm-hmm. the Wikipedia page for anybody working in Hollywood, you'll find out that they're a Coppola. <laughs> like that's, that's how yeah, it happens. Cage, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, or they're like they're it's related to nepotism. someone famous, or yeah, they yeah, have a lot of yeah, money. Yeah, industry plants. Oh, that's what did. Adam yeah, said yeah. before, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, funny. it's like you know, show like that. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. We're with a lot less money, right? <laughs> I just wanted to say I really, really liked that movie you made. I don't want to delve too much into yeah, the detailed cool. questions because. There are kind of spoilery elements, so I guess I'll maybe ask you about that in like a DM later. Yeah, I want to check these out. Don't spoil them for me. Yeah, of mm-hmm. course. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I guess we got to move on to Matrix discussion. Beautiful. So here we go. Segway. There was a movie <laughs> called <laughs> The Matrix. For the pile. Let's get it started because they ran out of <laughs> R words to use for the title. Yeah, it had to be an R word. Yeah. Well, here we are. Let's let's start with our guest. I want to know. Just a quick, what did you think of this film? <laughs> I, you know, I've never been that big of a Matrix fan. I, I've always appreciated the first because the first was very like innovative in its filmmaking and action. But I think it, it was – I've always viewed the first as kind of a war between the allegory it wants to tell and just being a big dumb blockbuster. Uh, you know, because I think it has a lot to say about like the systems that control us and how we keep ourselves down and ha- like how break, like I think a lot of people come away with it very literally. They're like, oh, the matrix is like, what if we were in a computer system? But the actual allegory is the, the, the governments we have in place, the borders, all of this is arbitrary because we agree on it. You know, we all, we all just mm-hmm. accept this and live that life. And that life creates a lot of pain and suffering for a lot of people. And, um, I think for there to be that great allegory and then the takeaway is like, whoa, Keanu Reeves dodged a bullet, you know? (laughs) I've never... I I know exactly (laughs) what meme that... that Yeah. Yeah. I can't describe it. I I think 
I think that's kind of the the pity with the Matrix is that is it has a lot of great ideas, even the first one. But it, it, at the end of the day, because of its scale and because of its success, it, it doomed itself to be, you know, an action movie. You know, it doomed itself to be mm-hmm. a, a, just an epic action movie with like groundbreaking visual effects. You know, and that's kind of it. Yeah, it was spent after one movie. I, I felt that way. The first time I saw it, like, like, but I've really warmed up to The Matrix, like, seeing it over time. Mm. Like, I actually really love that movie now. Like, I think mm, it I is it. really innovative, like you were the saying. The first one is great. Yeah. yeah, the first one, I mean, <laughs> the sequels, whatever. <laughs> yeah. The, the first one, I mean, it is really innovative, and yeah. It inspired movies I love, too, like Inception, and I see, like, how it influenced them, you know? Oh, absolutely. I think both halves are independently great. I, like the action and the, the ideas. I just don't think they're melded that gracefully throughout the series, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so would you say that your, your criticisms are similar for this newest film? Yeah. I think this new film is interesting. I don't think this, the, the action's nearly as good. The action's pretty, pretty subpar, yeah. actually. Very shaky yeah. cam. Very like, uh, I think it's you know, like fucking it, it, embarrassing. It's a huge departure. <laughs> what was that? What was the Neil was Patrick Harris that. effect where he had like a low shutter speed? I just didn't that, know what they were like. Going it was like, for oh, there. Yeah, yeah. That was so bad. It's like you could, <laughs> if, if I was watching that without having seen the first Matrix, I would assume that there was a lot of that in the first Matrix and that they were like calling back to like a 90s effect. But like the first yeah, Matrix yeah. didn't do that. Sure. Like we're thinking like, like a, a, Uva Bowl film or something like from the 90s like that's (laughs) that's what would be using that effect like sure there are some dated things but like the Matrix was so ahead of its time like it doesn't really feel too there's some dated elements to it but it doesn't feel too dated overall as as like a film I don't know it's very of the time it feels like an early 2000s movie yeah it captures the time period but it doesn't feel like lesser because of it sort of way yeah, it is just a time capsule movie. Yeah, I guess before we get too deep into the dis- discussion, let's just go one by one. What did you think of it, Alex? Um, yeah, I'm I'm kind of with like Joel, where I I really like that first movie. I appreciate that first movie, but we're already in a position where two Matrix movies are bad, and they kind of explored the story they set up and the conflict they set up, and it, it seemed like like it wrapped up. And it's like oh, 20 years later we got this valuable ip let's let's make a new one let's see what we can explore that's fresh with this because it's like a trend now to do this mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's like there's not a single point in the movie where i'm like yeah there was like a, a really honest good starting point with this it's like it, it like acknowledges that it doesn't want to exist it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's like the whole point of the movie Right, with all the meta humor. It's, yeah, because I, I was seeing mixed things about it before it came out. It's the last Jedi of Matrix films. Yeah. It's like the <laughs> Deadpool of Matrix films. It's like so like self-referential, and we're already self, like, sick of that. But that's the thing. like The Deadpool writing like works within the vacuum of Deadpool, but now when, you, when you're having this whole kind of meta-narrative slant, and that's kind of what the first act of the <laughs> oh movie is, it's like... Keanu now we're being sick of it. We're in the free guy era. Where I was just so sick of like the meta. Yeah. yeah, you just you just made me think of like if Keanu turned to the camera and just said, "Well, that's just lazy writing." <laughs> like Deadpool voice. They might I as mean, well have might done as that. Well have, I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty much on that level. Right. I mean, there is the line in the movie like Warner Brothers wanted a sequel. Like, yeah, I, I heard about that before the movie. That made me groan. I'm like, that's it's so bad. bad. That and then they to be like, some of the best. All stuff. the yeah. meta shit is just like in the first third or half of the movie, anyway. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's the best part of the go movie, anywhere. I thought, was the first third. and like I thought it was all just like... fucking garbage. I thought it was consistently garbage. <laughs> I couldn't handle, I couldn't I mean, handle honestly, the meta shit because there wasn't any... At least that was funny. There wasn't anything clever about it. It was just, it's happening in this way, right? Like, no, so no, I was not that clever. I mean, it's pretty... You, you know what they could have done? Honestly. I was wishing the entire time that they went even further with the meta shit because they didn't, they didn't really think of how to utilize the idea properly. They made Keanu mm-hmm. a fucking game developer. They made Neo a game developer. And then they're showing all these these like clips from the movies and then later they're like oh that's the game and it's like okay are these yeah. cutscenes from the game is this like was this the most revolutionary game of all time and it just looked like real people what they could have done instead two things open. if you wanted to keep it neo's a game developer and, and he's you know these are clips from the game you could have actually just created like really uh low polygon scenes from the matrix and make it look like a 90s video game that could have been cool if you wanted to be like oh here are clips from the game and then you recreate those scenes in like a shitty video game engine to make it look like it's the time period that would have been awesome but what i think they really should have done was have have keanu reeves play keanu reeves and then he like gets off the Mm. set of the matrix (laughs) it's like being john malkovich to adaptation or some shit yeah like he's like getting off the set of the matrix and then it starts like invading his real life like fucking Wes craven's new nightmare or some shit and then like (laughs) yeah the like directors play themselves and like you could have you could use like unreleased footage from like the special effects and stunts from the first matrix films and incorporate that into it that would have been fucking cool that would have been more meta and it would have worked so much better why is he a game developer why are we doing this shit (laughs) why is why is that happening that doesn't make any fucking sense that's it feels so much less purposeful if they would have just like done it a bit more keanu was what what do you think of keanu's acting in the movie he's bad (laughs) flat out well yeah he wasn't great is he better or worse than the original Matrix, do you think? Worse. He's better in John Wick, honestly. <laughs> no, he's better in the original Matrix because at least yeah. there's all the martial yeah. arts stuff. He's really good yeah, physically the martial in arts, movie. Right. There's just not you as know. much in this new one because that action, as you said, sucks. And he seems more like physically into those John Wick movies. Like he's do- He does all his own stunts in those like riding horses, and it's really impressive. But he still knows Kung Fu. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <Right, right, right. laughs> I mean, was it really in this movie? I feel like they barely focused on that. Both the um, acting and the fight coordination and choreography, that's less of a problem with the actors and more of a problem with the other people working on the film. So if you look at like yeah, all of these individual roles where it came to like uh, the cinematography, uh, the score, you can look at the Wikipedia mm-hmm. pages for like who's credited or the IMDb or whatever. You'll see the consistent people across the franchise, one, two, three, and then just somebody else for this newest film. And it's just like, oh, yeah, you replaced some... Issue yeah, like, what the fuck? Of course the cinematography is worse. Of course the score for the film is worse. Like, and it's noticeable. Yeah. It's incredibly noticeable. You just got some other random person to do it. Fucking Hugo Weaving was going to be in this <laughs> film, and then they just... He he was he wanted to be in it, and Lana was like, no, we're filming it right now. Like, he he was... He, was, he <laughs> yeah, had conflicted why? scheduling with another project like he was working Tobin on. It's like Tobin Bell Yeah, and he was like... It's like yeah. He's like, I can do this in three months from now, but she's like, no, we want to do it now. Maybe it was her, maybe it was Warner Brothers, like, forcing her hand to do it, but either way, like, Hugo Weaving was supposed to be in this film, and then they wrote him out of it because he wasn't available at that specific point in time, and they wanted to rush the movie out sooner. So that whole, like, young uh, Agent Smith cringe boy... Like, <laughs> that is not even something that was, like, an intentional, like, oh, this is artistic uh, choice to put in there. Apparently, Lawrence Fishburne was not even contacted, so who knows? Maybe he said something to make them <laughs> mad at some point, but... 
Yeah, Hugo Weaving was supposed to be in the movie. So it's just like, it's all just nonsense and bullshit. Like, you can't even explain it away of like, oh, this is just some artistic choice. It's mm-hmm. nonsense. It's bullshit. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was feeling that the whole time with the recastings. If it's not a reboot, it just is distracting if you have new people. And I guess you can explain it away through the Matrix. You know, their avatar looks different. But then it's like, why don't some people's avatar, you know, why don't they look yeah, that What different? was that about? Yeah, it never ends. Because, like, this is taking yeah. place 60 years after the first Matrix, right? And so you have uh, Jada... Pinkett Smith. I always want to say Plinkett. And she's in this really shitty old age makeup. <laughs> but then like Keanu Reeves, I forget what the specific line is, but they tried to explain away like why Neo looks like a old homeless person to other people but not himself. But mm. then he goes out of the matrix because they explained that by saying the machines were altering your digital self-perception. I think that was the word. But then he comes out of the matrix and he still only looks like 10 20 years older than before but why is jada who is out of the matrix also why is she 60 years older why is there a discrepancy between how old the characters are like that doesn't make any sense yeah what that that kind of stuff was really clunky and why would they explain away the only the thing in the like why was he an old homeless man in the mirror in the matrix for one part why did why was that required explanation that doesn't make any sense because they needed a reveal i think it was like the slapdash excuse to like make a reboot you know you needed to rebuild him like that whole scene was just kind of embarrassing when you know he was Mm. being put back together and it's just like the no one's ever really gone star wars thing where (laughs) that was terrible yeah it's like if if he doesn't die then it's like kind of defeats the whole allegory of the third movie i still don't understand why he's not dead there's so much of this movie that's exposition, I couldn't pay attention to all of it. It's yeah. just so It's boring. basically all it is. <laughs> yeah, mostly. It's that and kind of a love story. Out of all the Matrix movies, it's got to be the most kind of anchored in the love story aspect, because that's basically what the plot is. It's like saving Trinity. That's kind of breaking her out. That's where I kind of come around to it, and I think I might be giving it too much credit. Because before the film, I saw the discourse, it's either the worst movie ever, ever, it's like a meta, genius, you know, self-referential thing. And mm-hmm. I don't think, like, people are saying it's all about, like, reboots and, you know, it's about its own redundancy. You know, the people who like it are like, oh, it's per- purposefully redundant. And I think that's kind of a lazy, like, way yeah. off. It's like, okay, gra- great, yeah. you made a pointless <laughs> I, I, movie. I can't get down with that. The fight choreography was intentionally subpar. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, I don't buy that for one second. Yeah. Bad. They, they got the best fight saying. choreographer to make it seem like the most subpar choreography. Like, that's a real <laughs> yeah. skill yeah, to, to make yeah. it seem like a 50% effort. Like, what would they say to him on set? Can you make this scene bad? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like not exactly. Good job. Exactly about on purpose. That yeah. didn't happen. It's supposed to be that way. So it's probably the same people that think that the first Sonic design was like a marketing stunt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just not, it's not to the point of parody that you could excuse it to that level. But I do think there is some philosophy behind this new one that is interesting. I think it harkens back to how the first movie wanted to be this wake up call. And obviously, like a movie's not going to start a revolution of people like, you know, not paying their taxes or whatever it would take to break the system down, you know? <laughs> but yeah. mm-hmm. but I think it kind of harkened... There is some interesting thoughts in this one about the reboots and how 
no matter how many times you package people the the same uh you know like the truman show thing or this or that people are just gonna play with the packaging is what i wrote i do letterbox that's what i wrote mm. in my review yeah. they're gonna play with the pretty thing and be like that's oh funny. this is fun and ignore what's inside and uh, i think that the movie's self-aware of that and there is this kind of acceptance as like maybe living in the matrix is better than we we gave it credit for you know i think i i think the last scene betrays this interpretation where they go i don't know are we in spoilers spoilers uh, <laughs> spoil it spoil the shit yeah, just spoil it. Yeah, where, where they go and beat up <laughs> neil patrick harris and then they're like oh we're gonna rebuild the world that i think that's really lame but it was so i lame. do think before that so scene lame. i did get this feeling that like there was this resignation to the audiences of the matrix and it was this sort of like you know what living in the matrix is okay if we just love each other and maybe love is better than nothing, you know? And uh, that mm-hmm. that's why I felt the film was so centered around love. And I think there wa- was sort of some mm-hmm. good moments. Like I think when they grab each other's hands as cheesy as it is, and it kind of propels everyone off, it's a very obvious visual metaphor for, for that message that like, mm-hmm. if we're going to be in here, we might as well make the most of it kind of feeling. And uh, I, I think if you were to give the film any credit, I think it's aware of that. That is beyond like, oh, just the meta narrative. It's beyond reboots are bad, you know, Marvel bad, DC. You know, it's not. It's not that simplistic. Mm-hmm. I think it's aware of how it uh, interplays with the commentary of the other movies. Mm-hmm. I just don't think the execution was anywhere near what it needed execution to be. Execution was for fucking y- awful for you yeah. to give it enough credit to be like okay it, it really brought this together you know it really sold these ideas i value themes i also value like the technical elements of a film and i think that in order to you know have a great film not not in every sense but like if you're going to have a film that does explore any number of themes like your your presentation should not be distractingly bad so much that it takes away from that right but even so Ooh, yeah. even if we ignore the presentation even bad. like thematically <laughs> i'm still kind of just like okay this is movie movie doesn't make any sense and it's a bunch of bullshit right so when you're talking about the <laughs> end sequence like maybe you were thinking about the uh them holding hands and what that meant about like living life in the matrix and i love that commentary that was awesome but i was so distracted mm-hmm. by how it seemed like the tone of the film just shifted into this weird, like, this is a girl boss feminist movie, but only for the <laughs> last, like, 15 minutes, which was really jarring because it didn't feel like it was going for that for the entirety of the so film. It felt like in. just at the end of the movie, they were like, okay, girl boss time, and that's it. And it's like, if that was a more consistent thing throughout the movie, then it wouldn't feel so jarring. But, like, just, yeah, like, it was the weirdest fucking thing at the end of the movie. It's like, okay, Trinity's going to be the one to save everybody. We're going to have Neil Patrick Harris being, like, this weird chauvinist, and he's going to say lines like, oh, can't you make her stop? Or, like, ooh, like, all this, like, sexist shit that just appears at the end. It's like, was this established? Like, was I, did I miss the whole first, like, 90% of the movie? And it was, like, they were doing shit like this the whole time? Like, that was just so weird to me. It was so bizarre. Just yeah. the marketing for mm-hmm. this film it was sucked. Weird. Just the it was like they changed their mind that. at the end of the uh, movie about like, what the movie it was. It looked like it was going to be a bad movie, like just from mm. watching oh, yeah. the trailers. <laughs> it was a bad idea from the beginning. It was, it was just a question of what they. Yeah, uh, I was like, oh man, this doesn't look so great. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. angle are they going to take? Why did they bring was. back both Wachowskis? That's all I kept thinking. Because they didn't want to do it. Warner Brothers said that they would make it without them, even if. Even if they didn't yeah, do it, right. so so Lana was like, "Well, 
going down that with the ship might or whatever. Have been I don't better. know. That I, I would honestly have been a think so. Choice to I get like a young filmmaker who is a fan of the Matrix and really wants to make a Matrix film, uh, and and they like they can do something with it. Um, that would have been more interesting instead yeah. of like this meta, like, oh yeah, screw the Hollywood system, man. This meta, is, but not meta. This Matrix enough. movie, they forced us to make it. Like, okay, who cares? Like, I don't even care. Like, just do the same shit again. Like, that would have been better. <laughs> that like a bland remake would have been better than this, you know? Because I like that Spider-Man movie. He gave me a lot of like the same crap I want. <laughs> Yeah, so, like that was borderline meta even. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, really. Um, it was very fun though, which is not what this movie is. This movie tries to it's fun maybe one percent of the time. <laughs> but it's yeah. like doing a million things at the same time. Like it, it's so confusing and jarring and there's like a lot of stuff going on. My problem is like yeah, it's dull. Oh, it's mm-hmm. very dull. My problem is, is like even trying to make this like super weird meta narrative sort of thing. Like there's so many better ways you could have done it. It even fails at doing that is the problem, right? Mm. If they had actually, I'm not somebody who's like, oh, I'm mad that it was something subversive, right? I would never be mad at that. I love shit like that. But the problem is that Mm -hmm. they failed at doing even that. They did it in like a really lazy way. Like (laughs) it's just... It was just so embarrassing. Yeah, I don't know who to blame if it's the writers or like the directors, the Wachowski or blame Wachowski. Like, I don't know who to blame for <laughs> blame her for. You got to blame the director. They made the film. I just I just feel like there, there's a more creative, better movie that solves that that you know that problem of it's being made no matter what we have to make a movie. Yeah, you know, I feel like there was a more creative solution than a kind of 50% of both it's like yeah on one hand we're just gonna kind of just matrix again and like force awakens it but on the other hand we're gonna (laughs) just surface level kind of critique the whole idea of this but then simultaneously be it and Mm -hmm. expect you to like it it's like just from the from the ground level it's just so like detestable to me and yeah, just so exactly. dull like it, does, it doesn't tick like all the things i expect and want from a matrix movie like the the scrappiness of like the main characters and that kind of gross dingy look of that movie it's, it's, it's just something else now it's so uh i was gonna say synthetic but i guess that's kind yeah, of what they want to go for um in some sense but you know synthetic in the bad way yeah it just doesn't genuine. feel like the same thing anymore it, it, it's broaching into this it's been so long the matrix is like kind of an old franchise at this point 20 years like this just has nothing to say it has no place at this point anymore yeah, make another animatrix i'd only be saying the opposite if it was coming from like uh if i felt that the story was coming from a place of like yeah we, we're inspired by this idea we really took this this nugget and went somewhere crazy with it i think after that first act that it could have gone somewhere it could have there was way more room to take those ideas and that self-aware narrative and like do something with it but nah it's just boring <laughs> yeah. and devolves like over time. The Animatrix is proof of that. Expected shit. There are other innovative sci-fi movies since like The Matrix that are like even be- either the same or better and like just like the- we have those movies now. We don't need The Matrix anymore. <laughs> like mm. this movie does yeah, nothing. Everything innovative. was inspired by it. Yeah. Like yeah. we have Inception now. Inception, Tenet. Yeah. Like things like that. Yeah. We don't need movies after Tenet. Adam, I think your idea of uh, the the movie being in the movie would have been so much more succinct and logical. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I would have so. It just like it would make sense to you know convince him he's an actor to keep him in the Matrix, and the Matrix was all something he acted. You know, like yeah. Why do you need uh, that whole uh, fucking Warner Brothers like is making a video game thing? Like it's just it's so many. 
it's not only like an unnecessary layer, but it makes it work worse thematically. <laughs> and it makes <laughs> and it makes it look look worse when you're like showing shit and it's like, okay, well you don't even know what a video game is if you're saying this is your a clip from the video game. Have you seen a video game, Lana? Yeah, I hate what? when, like, Space Jam uh, <laughs> New Legacy. I yeah. hate when movies just have no clue how video games work. Yeah. And it's just like, you couldn't just consult so a nerd. Oh, you know, EA you could just bring camp. a, you could just so, bring a nerd E3 on board. Summer camp. That's right, yeah. yeah. That's what they did. Yeah. I'm just like, talk to any nerd and he'll correct, like, all these mistakes in, like, 30 seconds. I mean, yeah. anyone who knows anything about video games, like, would know that it's like, oh, they don't look like this. There's, like, a camera angle on the character you know unless this is a cutscene, like you were yeah. saying if you wanted to make it look good but i <laughs> space jam yeah, a new legacy yeah. wasn't concerned about anything <laughs> no, no. There, there was no attempt at making a good film unfortunately not even in <laughs> yeah, the slightest yeah. there's the whole like world building side right and yeah talking about like the nerdy stuff that's one way they could have taken it and every time they kind of tease stuff that has happened in the world i was kind of like oh this this seems kind of interesting that like this whole there's like a civil war with like the machines and there's like defected machines that are like working with the humans now and stuff they have like elements at play but it's just background material it's so yeah, it's just limited oh, to damn. exposition. It's like, yeah, this Ted is what's happened in the space. I just thought yeah, of another good idea. The movie is so boring. So you know that segment <laughs> in the Animatrix where it's like a two-parter? It's like probably the best one. It's like it shows like the rise of the machines or whatever and all that. Like, yeah, you yeah, could probably do one. something like that. Like make a live-action version of that, you know? Like fill it in a bit, give it some like good characters to follow, mm -hmm. you know? Like the Animatrix was proof that you could create things within that the existing universe you don't have to retcon a bunch of shit. You don't have to bring that back Keanu Reeves. Like the Matrix mm. is a universe you can still do things with. Like they could have brought back Keanu Reeves. I like that Keanu Reeves is in it. Imagine like a Blade Runner twenty forty nine kind of movie, like directed by a different director. But like Keanu you know, Reeves shouldn't be like, alive. Really inspired. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Neo, <laughs> like something like that. <laughs> is what All I'm right, sure. Say. But like you make it work. Like who gives a shit? Like it's, oh, it's the on. Matrix. Whatever. No, you gotta have Keanu Reeves in it. No, you can't just say that. <laughs> doesn't matter <laughs> I, I wouldn't care for this kind of movie no not for this kind of movie they should have just done like a uh not not in a bad way but in like a free guy sort of way just have a guy in the <laughs> matrix like slowly breaking out and realizing it. anything like that would be interesting to like redo and revisit they could have just done that right there's like a million things they could have done that would have been better. A billion, yeah. Like this is this is like the worst outcome <laughs> of like Any making, of us yeah. a, making a new Matrix like film. Right, <laughs> you can't get much worse than it's this. It's like you really can't. Right. It's like the dumbest. It's the dumbest. Like yeah, kind of plot conceptually like story and, you could write. and yeah. execution. Like you can't. I really enjoyed the third, the first third with like the. I don't know. I, I couldn't guess even. A I lot of it was, like, most. so fucking transparent. Her hu fucking husband's name was, like, Chad and shit. And then she was, like, <laughs> she just immediately goes out to coffee with Keanu, and she's, like, oh, I actually don't like my husband and children. And it's, like, what the fuck? Like, it's so obvious where you're leading the story. And then, like, what? He's this, like, famous game designer for forever, and then he gets this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, uh, what you, what's it called? Like, assistant now who's, like, getting him coffee. He's, like, oh, by the way, right now clearly for the audience i really loved all these themes in your video game and blah 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 and it's like 
oh, I hate how transparent the script is. It's just so embarrassing mm-hmm. and obnoxious. And then this whole like boardroom meeting of like, oh, how do we make the game good? How do we make it sellable? And then they just use, I don't know if you stuck around after the end credits, but they basically use like an extra shot from that where they're like, we're go- people like cats. We're going to call it the Catrix. And that was their like post credit, <laughs> like, ha ha, woo. Fuck. It was so. There's a post credit gag. Yeah. I didn't even know that. <laughs> I did not. Oh yeah, God. right? I can't believe I <laughs> saw that okay. either. <laughs> yeah, like, you don't need a post credit thing just because Marvel does it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I-, I like the uh, idea that, like, whoever, um, uh, I'm blanking on her name, Trinity, whoever Carrie she M. was Moss. supposed to be, like, uh, Carrie M. Uh, like, whoever <laughs> she was supposed to be, like, a car mechanic or something, would know about a famous game developer. Like, you know, she was, yeah. like, in some mechanic <laughs> shop, and I'm like, whatever avatar she was controlling, like, would not know, like, Hideo Kojima if you walked yeah, into, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, it's like, like, game developers don't get, which would make so much more sense if he was an actor or, like, a film exactly. director like, or something. Yeah, you fix so yeah. many of the problems with that you fix so many of the problems famous game developers are only known by people who play video games you know yeah. they're not like a-lister <laughs> exactly. stars uh-huh. most people yeah. don't know who Hideo kojima is not like yeah yeah Hideo kojima is not like i don't know steven spielberg you know it's not like yeah. the same <laughs> I, ha- I have a note in here that was i i made sure to write it down because it was so funny they introduced like some machines names i don't even know if they were shown on screen i don't remember but like she was like these are watching over you keanu they're your friends the machines names are shabebe and octocles <laughs> and oh just... the sidekick robots yeah yeah were they ever shown on screen i don't yeah, even that's remember weird. like so much of this movie no, is yeah just so it was like full star wars yeah. like prequel shabebe stuff, like, just with these yes, and were. octocles in a weird offshoot just this week i watched this bollywood movie called robot uh-huh. Which you've probably seen the <laughs> clips from. It's yeah, just I've an seen it. it's an insane movie. It's the one where like he like magnetizes like fifty guns and like shoots them all at once. And, yeah, like, he has like, like a bunch of clones he tar- or whatever. He has a bunch of like clones. They turn him. Yeah. Like you've probably seen the clips on yeah, YouTube, yeah. but. But yeah, the whole the thing is just insane in a way that, like, makes me look at something like this that's just so, like, bog standard and so uninteresting. I, I just mm-hmm. wish, like, these people with all this money were a little crazier. You know, I wish they were a little yeah. less boring. Cause that's it's like, right. if you got- I mean, that's the first Matrix film. Yeah. Right? That doesn't happen anymore. Even films we talked about on this podcast. Yeah, like Stephen Chow movies are insane. Like those movies like like Shaolin Soccer. Like I'd rather oh, watch I that. Love those. That's that's crazier than this. Like, yeah, yeah, but there's like a million other movies. Yeah. This is kind of like you were saying it's kind of lame now. Like yeah. they need to try a little harder like the if the action was cool that really would have helped. Even in the Matrix sequels I don't like the the action scenes are really good. Exactly. Like that, that highway right? chase. I then, like that. I, I, I like that chase. Match it. It's just the rest of the movie. You know, that highway chase is cool. Yes or no, did any of you come out with a newfound appreciation of the original Matrix sequels after watching this? Not the sequels, but of the original no? one? Yeah, I mean... It's yeah, the original movie. Matrix The, the original one. The original like, one. I think as far as the action is concerned, <laughs> yes. Yeah, like... Well, yeah, the Hell action yeah. scenes. Maybe watching this newest Matrix film, like, you understand, like, even the first two sequels of the matrix like they still met the bare minimum requirements for making yeah, a matrix mostly film. that highway they, yeah the chase. highway chase mostly scene, that right like yeah like they, that was a great the chase. music was still fantastic throughout 
the trilogy. You know, like there were a lot of like mm. innovative, uh-huh. really cool and interesting special effects and action scenes and like compute even computer animation, even though that's like the most dated part of it for the sequels now, like that was revolutionary for its time. You couldn't do sure. a, a, yeah. a, a scene in that year before that point where you had like the slow motion punch of I said his name already hugo weaving's face and have it look convincing enough for an audience in a theater at the time like that was like a new thing to like have someone's face look realistic it was so weird i remember actually reading in like guinness book of world records it was like first realistic like like as if that means anything oh really Uh, yeah yeah that's a lot of like movies at that time i remember the early 2000s or like even just like the yeah like the 2010s or whatever the, like the cgi like that big push of like special effects like there were so many groundbreaking yeah. movies sure. lord of the rings and harry potter and then like avatar was 2009 now it's like kind of peaked you know like now we're not even impressed by it anymore mm. it's just like like the avengers had like a million effects in it I just didn't even care like <laughs> no one cared it's just like yeah whatever we're so jaded now we're so like jaded to like cgi and that kind of stuff it really used mm. to be impressive like even in this movie I, I was not impressed at all by like any of the action sequences or the cgi or that kind of stuff it was oh, so bland i actually i liked the shot of the apple in the slow motion neil patrick yeah Harrison. yeah that was the sure, only yeah. moment where i was like oh that looks kind of cool and then the rest of it looked fake as shit. I mean, yeah, sure that. Okay. I think that comes back to the sort of Bollywood Stephen Chow argument that there's so much you could do with <laughs> unlimited money. You know, you could like th- those movies have far less funding than Hollywood blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and they they just go insane and they don't limit their <laughs> ambition and yeah. you know, I I just like hate that like the the logical end for like uh these blockbusters is to convince us things look real it's like why do we need to think that things are like like uh, every marvel movie everything is just trying to like ground it in reality the effects are trying to seem like they're married with the world and the humans and and i'm just like why don't we just go goofy like go over the top and i do have such a soft spot for like early 2000s blockbusters because they they like cgi wasn't there yet they couldn't yeah. convince us and the ones that recognize that like the raimi spider-man movies and just went crazy with it like you know it's like why did we lose that like want to be experimental with cgi like we we yeah. lost that want to like go crazy and instead we pulled back and we're like okay now we could just like look real this is what we wanted to do all along you know it's like no you missed you missed the excitement of it you know you missed what was making cgi such a bold new thing if you're making a matrix film you can do whatever the fuck you want because it's in the matrix yeah like you you are not Mm. limited in the story like you don't have to do things a certain way you know how they they like in the film they're like oh well nobody uses payphones anymore so people go through mirrors now like you wouldn't have to alleviate that issue because it's the Matrix. So you can do whatever the fuck. It can be whatever aesthetic you want. You can set it still in the 90s in the Matrix. Regardless of what year you want the mm-hmm. not in the Matrix scenes to be, you can still have the Matrix in whatever they're in the Matrix. It could still be like in that time period. It doesn't matter. Like you have full control over this. How are you like trying to correct and, and <laughs> alleviate these issues that you are creating by you making decisions that you don't need to? Like it doesn't make any sense. You can make the animation whatever mm. it wants, you know, like you can have like an unrealistic world. It doesn't matter. Like they, they did this in the uh, Animatrix. Like they had so many different, uh, they, they had such a variety of 
of different stories and different styles and like remember there was one that was like this weird like crazy trip out like you're not limited in the way that you are even with writing other films like <laughs> yeah it seems like they limited themselves and just exactly with, yeah we'll just go with apathy they cause their own we'll problems a- that apathetic matrix movie yeah i haven't seen it but I've seen a lot of love for their uh, Speed Racer movie because it's sort of a weird ballet of CGI and expression, like Im- impressionistic CGI. Like yeah. very, uh, Have any of us seen it? I've seen parts of it. It's one we've been meaning to recommend, actually, yeah. for a while. I've seen it, but it's been such a long time. I need to watch it again. Cool. Like, I, I can't. I can't write it. I just get lost in like, then Jupiter Ascending came out and it's like, so how much of this is like yeah. intentional? Intentional, you know? yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, Jupiter Ascending's a piece of fucking garbage. Like, there's no <laughs> arguing that. What were you trying to say about Speed Racer before? Just that I, I think that would be more akin to what we're talking about as far as making a Matrix movie with, like, more more uh, imagination, you know? Because it seemed like, at least I'm only speaking as somebody who's only heard what other people think of Speed Racer, but it seemed like there was a lot of love for that movie's... uh just will to like lean into the uh unrealness of it you know it, it was like a real life anime you know it, yeah, it was yeah, very it was pure cartoon yeah and, and i don't know why there's this want to make especially something set in a computer so grounded and i think i even had the same <laughs> problem with like inception and stuff it was like inception's dreams were so boring it's like who's dreaming of some like james mm. bond like snow base uh you know it's like my dreams are like crazy abstract and i'm like why aren't we leaning into that now that we have the tools and funding to do so i had a yeah. dream last night that a friend i was helping a friend move out of their house i don't know inception inception though there's a reason for it in the plot like this movie yeah. is just like lazy like yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not creative I, I, i'm just saying like there's this trend to like go for the realism over the uh expressionism in like large-scale movies and i I just don't think it works i think if you have not much money it makes sense to make a movie that's very grounded in reality but if you're already tossing around nonsensical amounts of money why not get nonsensical with it yeah why why adhere to reality because you're already creating something in a realm beyond people's understanding of like how could you have all this money? How could you have all these Mm -hmm. resources? You know, and yet you're still desperately trying to like cling on to like, you know, a a grain of relatability. It's like, let it go. Cause like you're different than us, you know, Robert Downey Jr. (laughs) making $50 million is not related at all to how we live our lives. So it's like, Uh, but he's a relatable guy. He goes Uh, to Mark's Pepper Potts. He goes on walks with her. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I love about how to rescue films is he's always had like a mentality Mm. of like, no, this isn't life. This is a movie. Like, I'm making a movie. <laughs> like it's not supposed to look like real life, right? So mm-hmm. that's why you get things like the Holy Mountain. It's just like, oh wow, this is this is not <laughs> supposed. This is not trying to be life anymore. <laughs> this is making commentary about life. Anyway, um, we mm-hmm. should probably say our ratings for this film and move on to other things. I'm giving this one a two out of fucking ten. The apple shot was the only <laughs> cool part. Could have been a little bit worse, I guess, but it was absolute garbage. I hated it. Cancer. Yeah. It's a one and a half star from me. Pretty low. I think that might actually be the highest 
uh, excluding the first movie, I think I gave the other ones a one star actually. So I might have to what appreciate f- that. But what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's because there are things that there are ideas that I, I, I do like, but it's where it goes. It's it's that runtime. Yeah. It's the, the the action. It's the look of the movie. It's the acting. It's just every single element when you take it apart. It just is not what I want to see. And it was like, it was like worst case scenario, as you said. And from the, you know, just from the first time seeing that trailer, it was like, yeah. Rut row. <laughs> yeah, it was a rut row moment. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm with Alex. One and a half out of five stars. I, I was weirdly kind to this movie. I did 2.5 out of five. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not indicative of this movie's quality. It's more indicative of, I don't think it's that much worse than everything else, you know, being put out and all the things it's like, quote unquote, commentating on. I, I don't think it like, you know, I, I gave like Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man, like a three out of five. And I, you know, I think the Matrix is definitely a little worse, but I don't think to me it all just blends together and it's all indicative of the larger problems of the industry and of filmmaking at such a scale and you know i i could like be upset that it like failed the matrix test but it's like what's the matrix test if the there's only one good matrix movie and the animatrix you know <laughs> it's like it's like well, yeah. like what what is that test i, I can't even get that upset because i'm not even attached to the series yeah so it, i liked i like like alex i like some of the seeds it had at the beginning and they just grew in really bad ways you know they just mm-hmm. made crappy plants and i'm like oh wow okay <laughs> never mind there was a drought yeah but yeah i guess i gave it 2.5 so that's that's mine Awesome. Okay, so it's time for our film recommendation discussion. Uh, there will be spoilers for this film, so maybe watch it, I guess. I don't Joel, could you introduce the film, maybe give a little blurb about it, mm-hmm. and uh, why you chose to recommend it, and we'll talk about it. John Cassavetes is one of my favorite filmmakers, if not my favorite filmmaker. And uh, when I found his work, I saw his first film, Shadows, which was this really, it's credited as one of, if not the first like American independent films ever. Mm -hmm. He like fully funded it himself. He cast people off the street, made it for, I think $40,000 at the time, which at the time you have to shoot on film and it's a lot more expensive than it would be nowadays. But, um, and then, uh, after shadows, he got hired to do some studio movies and he hated the experience. You know, he did two, movies for studios and he just hated the control being taken away from him he hated all the the checks and balances so faces was his return to making something totally independently himself and i think it took him something like three years to make and when i saw this movie it was the first movie of his that really clicked with me and i think it's a great introductory point because it's him at like this super raw point, but he's starting to control it. You know, he's starting like shadows is just really rough around the edges, but faces yeah, is, yeah. faces <laughs> is this, really rough. faces is this like story that is, it feels more intentional through and through. And, um, with his rawness and his style, he, he honed it in a way that feels intentional. And it's the, just the story about, uh, this married couple that have decided to get a divorce and the two branching affairs that happen off of that. And it, it, it's pretty well told entirely in like 
I think seven or eight really long scenes. You know, they're just these really long conversations that like have ups and downs and like, it's almost like roller coaster scenes that like you never know where they're going to go next. And uh, I just think it's a really awesome look at a filmmaker who would go on to do, I, I think this is one of his best films still. I don't think it's that developmental, but I think it's just such a good introductory to a filmmaker who would really go on to like, push filmmaking in a very specific direction that only he ever like mastered. And I just love to see a filmmaker do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of his best. I think. Mm. What'd you think it real for Alex? Um, yeah, I'm glad um, you're a lover of it. Cause uh, that, I, I didn't really fully connect with this one. It was one I appreciate more than mm. fully enjoyed. Um, it's, but I think that's part of it, you know, it's it's kind of exhausting to watch because of the way it's constructed, because of the stylings of it, because of those, just the uber natural performances that come through, through these, I don't want to use the word abuse, but like just the the liberal usage of all these like close-ups on the, on the faces mm. and just the, the effect that builds over the time and the, the kind of yeah. lack of structure with how it is conversational and how it flows through that. And I was... I was into it for the first kind of hour and 20 minutes, um, mm. but then I started I started feeling um, just kind of a lack of, of, of direction. I felt like I was, I kind of had my fill of this type of storytelling <laughs> and I was, I was demanding a bit more, but that's, that could be more on me. Yeah, I could feel that way too, but I also feel like that's kind of the point with, with mm. like yeah. all of his movies. Is this like the only movie you've seen from him? Because like yeah, it, this yeah, is like his a... style. This is his style. It, like Casavetes, I'm sure you'd agree somewhat, uh, <laughs> Joel. Like it's just like he's very natural, right? Very realistic, believable characters. Like very like improvisational feeling. Mm. Yeah, it's one of his better movies though. Like, um, it's it's not that rough. Like I I, I like the performances in it. It's um. Yeah, it feels like a Cassavetes movie. I'm not a huge fan of him. I don't love him as much as like like people I met in film school loved him. There was like some people I met loved him, but like he's okay. Like some of his other movies, I think I like a bit more. Um, this one though, I I don't know. I I really enjoyed it for the most part. I'm probably a little more positive on it <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it goes back to like it feels like very believable. The the performances are very good. The dialogue's really good. The opening scene is great. Like just the way like they're interacting and it's cut. And mm-hmm. I think like uh Cassavetes was like a very innovative filmmaker and like how he let actors improvise and, and how he would like cut his movies and and yeah, it was all about like maintaining that very grounded tone and, and yeah, he, he does it really well, I think. Like mm-hmm. there's like this kind of rule in film, like you should avoid showing movies or like talking about movies because it'll like take your audience out of the movie or like just remind them that they're watching a movie, right? But like within the first five minutes of this movie, characters are like talking about movies. Like they mentioned La Dolce Vita and like that kind of shit. Birds, like, yeah, yeah I, I like the mm-hmm. line. Uh, something I don't like, want to yeah, be depressed. The, I don't want to be depressed. And then he goes on to just make an immensely depressing movie. Yeah. You can see directors taking from this movie. How did you feel, uh, Adam? So I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere in there. I, I agree with Alex. I, I feel like I kind of imp- appreciate it more than I really fully experienced it. 
I was totally into it. At there are definitely scenes that I was definitely um, like sucked into it. But I feel like the conversation behind the movie is more interesting than the film itself. Yeah. Uh, for mm-hmm. my own personal experience. Um, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions because this, this is going to be like, I have a lot of assumptions about this film and about uh, how it stands out from the crowd in terms of like when it was released. And obviously mm-hmm. I'm not like an expert on film history. I'm not an expert on older films. So this, these are just assumptions that I guess you can tell me whether or not these assumptions are justified. But uh-huh. the way I felt watching sure. the film is that for the time period, it was probably a little risque and out there to just have like a bunch of drunk people belly laughing for like <laughs> so much of the film or, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, talking, you know, not showing these kind of like intimate parts about human behavior because everything else is kind of like, you know, it's scripted. Every Everything else is like the, there's a clear plan and goal of that's his, point that's A his to point B. And, style. Yeah, like, that's so what I mean about like, the dialogue. Kind of like a, like, the, yeah. the dialogue feeling very believable. It's not just how it's written; it's the fact that characters yeah. talk over each other, and there's like screaming. This very much feels like kind of like a rebellious response to like conventions that were popular mm. at the time, providing some sort mm-hmm. of like outlet Definitely. for people who that was didn't want to see the you know everything else that was in theaters. And what's crazy, what I enjoy about this, what I like is like to the best of my knowledge, like this was a successful film too. It's crazy that he was able to find success doing that. It was nominated for like three Oscars, mm. right? Yeah. So that's yeah, crazy. That's right. I, I I like that about it too. I, I guess like also I was trying to keep in mind of like not just human behavior, but also like, I guess we could call it like censorship for what is considered like profane at a certain period in mm. time. Like I didn't, I, I don't know if there's a lot of, films from like the 60s right it's the 60s yeah 1968 yeah, 60s, a lot yeah. of films from mm-hmm. the 60s where you'll have people talking about like eating pussy <laughs> right? mm. like, just yeah. criticizing marriage in general like the yeah. nuclear family like yeah for yeah. the 60s that's kind of a big deal right it's definitely Ex- yeah. exactly this kind of thinking it's definitely uh-huh. a commentary. 60s was definitely like the transitional period cuz 1950s was very nuclear family mm-hmm. driven like you know Hollywood went bigger than ever with like you know the Ben Hur cinema scope yeah. you know in response to uh television at the time which was this like you know very intimate experience that drove people away from theaters and uh oh, yeah. Hollywood Hollywood went huge and like dumb and it's like yeah like America's the best sort of like you know exceptionalism mm-hmm. exactly. in the 50s and i think you see a lot of movies in the 60s kind of deconstruct that but i don't think any did it quite as raw and as real as faces did mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. I, I think what faces did that the other ones did it is it had that production element behind it where it too was sort of like a middle finger to the establishment and and um it too was a middle finger to the preconceived like uh ideals of the, the american culture at the time and mm-hmm. i think I think uh I I think what's interesting to me about it is now that I like I've seen it four times and I think the first time I appreciated it more than I really <laughs> loved it mm-hmm. and I I think okay. as I explored John Cassavetes filmmaking you you become hyper aware of what interests him and he is squarely focused on like humans 
how they interact mm-hmm. and lo- love and what that does to them. You know, nothing else matters. He doesn't want to tell a grand narrative. He exactly. doesn't want like, he doesn't want to entertain people. Like he, he'll, he'll go off in interviews. Like if you haven't yep. seen interviews with him, he's incredible, but he'll go off in interviews. Like <laughs> he's like, I hate entertainment. Like I shoot somebody in the head. I hate watching that. Like, I, why do you need to shoot somebody? And he like, he, he just is like so hyper interested in like solving the human problem and solving the love problem. And like, he, he, you know, there's almost a tragedy if you follow the trajectory of his career that he never Mm -hmm. really solved it. You know, he, he was always trying to figure out like, why do we do this love thing when it hurts us so much? And, um, and I think faces is just like probably still stands like above most of his other films just in it's like, you know, the, the, the suffocating close-ups force you to look deeper into the characters than anyone they're talking to is looking at them, you know? So you're like being pushed in mm. beyond, beyond the surface level of what they're saying. Like when mm-hmm. they're laughing, it's like, what's underneath that laughing? When, when they're like, even when they're like, seem to be speaking the truth and saying like, I hate you or I want a divorce, they're, they're not speaking the truth. And I think it's all like the key to the whole movie is, uh, Chet, Chet, the the quote unquote young guy. He's like playing a twenty year old, but Seymour Cassell's like thirty or something. <laughs> that was a little distracting. I've always found that funny, but um, the at the end when he uh, I guess spoilers for faces, but um, yeah, at the at the end when she um she uh, overdoses on the sleeping pills and he's mm-hmm. sitting in bed and he says no one has time to be vulnerable to each other you know uh, and we're all like robots mechanized and uh, i think that's sort of the thesis of the film that that you know everything we're doing whether it's laughing dancing loving it, there's something underneath it that we're just not getting at just like there was something underneath the nuclear family at the time there there there's a darkness breed like brooding in everyone you know coming off of like the war and you know going into another war it, it was just like a really you know and mm-hmm. I, I i i don't think uh but I, I don't think the movie is so specific to its time that it's only valuable when viewed in that lens. Because when no, I see this, no. I see a lot of myself in it. I see like, yes, I like my friends and I will laugh way more. Like we'll laugh and goof around mm-hmm. even if we're like depressed. And it's like, yeah. even if we probably should be like, hey, I just went through this horrible thing with my, you know, my partner or I, I, I'm still mm-hmm. reeling from a, a loss or I'm still, you know, and you, you just don't do that. You don't open up to people just because, you know, it, it's hard and it, it takes like, it takes so much more guts than you have to like do that. And I, I think this, this film is accusatory in ways, not just of the time, but of people in general. And I feel like it's almost like, you know, turning a, a mirror on me when I watch it. And it's just like, why, why do you act this way? You know, I'm not like a cheating scumbag guy like a lot of the guys in mm-hmm. this movie are. But, um, uh, yeah, they're older characters. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, there's older. still like a universality <laughs> in it that, yeah, definitely. that it, it, it speaks to, how humans interact and what lays beneath that interaction in a way that I, I haven't seen many movies do. And, yeah. and it, you know, it, it, after you watch this movie, it's kind of hard for a day or two to like just hang out with your friends because you're That's like, funny. oh shit, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm doing that thing, you know, I'm doing the, <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's valuable, like in Cassavetti's like filmography. I definitely feel that way. It's like a very strong movie. It's much stronger, I think, in Shadows in terms of like the technical mm-hmm. stuff. 
that movie seemed much more shoddy to me than like this one. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't feel there's much to say about it, honestly. Like it's a, it's good. Like I definitely enjoyed it. There's just like, you know, it's mostly it's like improvisation. Mostly it's it's like very improv heavy and. Yeah, it's a focus on like really good performances. Like the 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 performances are very good, and mm-hmm. I think the reason why it's like held up is like one of the most important movies, kind of like of this type, is because Cassavetes is like attached to it, and he is mm-hmm. that like anti-establishment filmmaker. He does have like that career in Hollywood. I'm glad you mentioned that. Like he, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't like it. Like he he does have that clout too, where you know. He's he's done it and he doesn't really like it. <laughs> um, mm. And and like this, this is a rebellion. Like this is a very rebellious film in that way. I think that's more of what you should take from it. It's like it also has no that. music, which is really like bold for yeah, a time. Too, you know, yeah. especially yeah. for American film, there's like no music other than the ending. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen a few of his movies. Yeah, this is one of his better ones. I thought anyway. Uh, I really like it. But and you're saying this is a more accessible one. As far as um, uh, I think, I, I think it's a good entry point, just because it it, get, yeah. it, it lays the groundwork as to what to expect from him. Because he his, yeah, like this is his style, his, right? Structurally, his films don't change much. They're always going to be about people at their core. They're always going to be these very vague narratives that are more about what's going on beneath the surface, and mm-hmm. and more about what you know the characters do to each other than what's happening to the characters. You know, from yeah. a external yeah. pressure and an external worldly force it's it's more about just the interactions and and i, I think his films like are definitely if, if you didn't connect with this one i, I think uh, just give him another chance sometime maybe give yourself some time to do it you know but uh, with the same film or do you have a like a, a different logical film. jumping yeah. off point which there's one there's a after? few great films from him a woman under the influence is great like mm-hmm. uh shadows like you could you could check out that one I really like Gloria. <laughs> Gloria is like one of his more Hollywood movies. It's, it's fun. Yeah, Woman Under the Influence is already on my watch list. Yeah, so that's that's, that's probably his best one. Yeah. That, that's his most like acclaimed. Mm-hmm. I, I think chronologically okay. isn't bad from Faces Onward. I think that's like Shadows okay. is kind of more interesting only in context. It is like his first film and it's very rough. And it, it, I, I love it because of what it was, but I'm not that mm-hmm. in love with like the story it tells. But Husbands. like, um, husbands is uh, a, him at his full like fuck the system. You know, yeah. like, hus- <laughs> hus- husbands <laughs> is really uh, even even for somebody who's like a diehard Cassavetes fan like me. It's really hard to watch. It's okay. there's like thirty there's thirty minute long scenes of just people being obnoxious, you know, to each other and to you know, <laughs> and, and so just about these three guys <laughs> who like never fun. grew up. Yeah, but but uh, Woman Under the Influence I'd watch next. Opening Night is amazing, and my favorite movie of all time is actually his last one, which is uh, Love Streams. And uh, uh, the the blonde woman in the movie, Je- Jeannie, who's played by his wife uh, Jenna Rowlands, they uh, worked together throughout his whole career, and she was always like the star in most of his films. Mm-hmm. And um, their last film, Love Streams, is uh he started acting in his films too as they went on, and he's such a good actor. He's a brilliant actor. Like he always considers himself an actor first and foremost because that's where his 
desire came from. He, you know, he started as an actor. He was in the Exor, no, not the Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby. Mm, yeah, yeah. But yeah. him mm. and uh, Jenna are the stars in his last movie, Love Streams, and he made it after he got a six month prognosis that he was going to die. And um, it's just th- th- this really intense outpouring of their like their love. It's his final crack at like trying to figure out what love is, and it, it the fact that he never mm. really figured it out it just makes that movie so devastating but so beautiful and um wow. i think it's that one's best viewed as like the end of like you're watching you don't need to watch all of his films to get to it but i think watch a couple to get the feel for like him and his wife and mm-hmm. i I, th- I think what i really appreciate like I, you feel it in faces for sure is he was like a collaborator above all else you know he, he he i think he joked that he was a horrible director because he didn't really direct people you know he just let them do their thing you know he he let you <laughs> yeah. know and I, my understanding of his process is they would like meet up improvise off camera turn that into a shooting script and then improvise off that script you know <laughs> yeah. and, and um that sounds about right so yeah. so he, he has a few more steps than what i ultimately do but i definitely finding him was sort of a confirmation that i'm like oh i'm onto something or like i could make work that i'm proud of using my method or you know st- stuff that stands the test of time yeah. and but he he's really uh He's really good at just letting people shine. And I think he has like the best performances I've ever seen at times. I, like Woman Under the Influence, Jenna Rollins in that is easily one of the best like performances ever. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think it's because he gives them such free reign with the characters and he lets them fall, find themselves in the characters. Uh, you know, he doesn't try to morph them to what he wants them to be. He, you know, it's very deliberate in who he has play who and, you know, and he that's who they were they were an acting troupe first and foremost that like loved theater and mm-hmm. stuff and then they just grabbed a camera and started making stuff together like him and all of his friends and um it, it's just it really comes across that like like the female characters like are so well done there's so much empathy for them like present in the film and mm-hmm. i think that's because the f- actresses were given that sort of you know that sort of power over the parts um like even that woman yeah. i feel so bad for her in this movie the the like you know the the of the four like uh housewives who like take the young guy home you know she's the one who's just like d- begging for a kiss and like dancing with him and it, i just feel like mm-hmm. i cried watching that again i'm just like that's so sad to me and there's so much like empathy on screen for just like this like tertiary character to the plot but you know everyone who comes on screen feels like a real person and feels like you know you're curious what they're thinking of the of the argument at all times or of the conversation you know when when it's those two like scummy business guys uh the two uh i, I don't know prostitute is the right word but the two mm. women and the, or escort or whatever they are <laughs> and then the then richard uh, then richard when it's those five the whole scene i'm thinking okay what does what's each one of these people thinking at all times you know what like i'm like i'm looking for the sympathy in the scene i'm looking for like i'm looking for the humanity in each character and i think he almost begs you to do that. You know, he begs you to like look at everyone's perspective in his scenes. And I, I, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I really love about his work and this film in particular, I think is a showcase of that. I'm, uh, I'm really glad you get that out, out of this film and his filmography even. Um, and thank you for sharing that with us because I am really interested in the conversation behind the film when it comes to myself 
relating to the film, I guess, personally, there, there are definitely moments where I'm like, okay, they, this is brilliant. But I guess what I'm mm. looking for in a film, not necessarily what I'm looking for, but what I got out of this experience um, was like these moments where I'm kind of like really interested in, I guess, I, I wasn't so much into the characters, but I was into how characters were portrayed in specific moments. Like, so I wrote down, I wrote down a part right where they're in the conversation where they're saying, um, remember when we don't have to worry about our wives and kids. And then there's this, mm. there's this intentional cut to a shot where I forget the character's name, but he's just kind of like pacing and he's like breathing really heavily. And he's going like, mm. like this weird kind of almost grunting noise for a few seconds and then they just continue back into the same conversation and i love that Mm -hmm. that was included especially because i'm i'm the type of person where i think about like what do i want to communicate or what would i like to see communicated in a film and a lot of these things that i would love to see portrayed in films are like these tiny moments where it's like of course someone's done that when they're drunk but nobody puts that in like all these things that you just wouldn't think to include in a film because they're not traditionally done in a movie mm-hmm. and just moments like that where it's just like okay why was that there like that that is mm-hmm. something that has happened would happen when you see it it's instantly recognizable of like oh yeah like they're shit-faced and you know like that's just like a, a normal but weird kind of like reflexive reaction at that moment but nobody thinks to put that in a movie and so stuff like that i like absolutely adore mm-hmm. but in terms of like the overall narrative i wasn't super connected to the characters and also i think the one thing that hurt my experience the most personally was it was kind of repetitive and i think that mm-hmm. for the length mm-hmm. i just would have preferred a film that like this kind of felt one note for me for much of it and i think that was really preventing me from getting like the true experience out of it and again this is my first cassavetes i'm not like huge into like older films in the first place so it's you know definitely a experience and perspective sort of thing but yeah in terms of like personal relatability didn't get a whole lot out of it but really appreciated a lot of things behind it I don't know mm. if you agree, Alex, about the um, sort of like one note repetitive nature or. Yeah. Uh, and every time that was bothering me, I was just trying to see it through the lens of someone in the 60s watching this and how it is pushing the boundaries. And yeah, now we do have like Woody Allen and Scorsese movies. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of seeing it from the inverse side. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I yeah, do exactly. agree with you where I was, I was, I was getting tired after an hour and a half mm-hmm. of it, but. Hearing the discussion though is like really interesting. It's got a really interesting backstory. Kevin Smith's uh, Clerks, like even that is like improv heavy, makes references to movies mm-hmm. inspired by his Cassavetes. <laughs> yeah, there's a ton of the movies inspired by this kind of thing. What I was actually thinking of while watching this film for parts of it, because I'm I'm aware because the poster for the film is like a bunch of like uh, <laughs> positive critical reviews essentially, and. Um, I think on the Wikipedia page, there was like a Roger Ebert review. I don't remember where. But uh, anyway, I I got to the point where I was like, oh, Roger Ebert gave this four stars. And I was actually like really interested in just imagining like the perspective of him where he was able to see Mm -hmm. this in a theater, like in, you know, experience this in his life and just the amount of filmography over the course of his life and how much film has changed over time going from like, okay, this John Cassavetes film faces like, this is like the rebellious sort of like anti-film thing. And then later in his life, seeing things like, I don't know, like dogma 95. And then like eventually in like 2009, it's like, what's an, what's an indie movie or like, 
you know, seeing things grow, like eventually he wound up seeing like the white ribbon and stuff like that. I'm just like, I'm very interested in that kind of perspective of, of just like, man, it's, yeah, exactly. it's crazy to imagine that someone lived through that much mm. history and progression and just changing of atmosphere and expectations and, uh, you know, e- even the technical craft of like, what is a technical limitation? What is possible with film? Like that's that's something that I was really interested in, and that's not even really something that the film is necessarily trying to communicate. But I just I just thought that was an interesting yeah. thing to think about. And I think he he might have put it on like his great movies list. I know he gave it four out of four, mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. I, I, it's just it, it is interesting to read like his review. I forget the specifics of it. I haven't read it in a while, but. It, it, it having a solid grasp on a critics like you know uh, i i know you've talked about this a lot adam that critics you're not you're not supposed to like agree with everything you're just supposed to understand like who the, like their perspective and how they mm-hmm. approach work and how they do stuff mm-hmm. and just like uh, having that perspective on it at the time is very interesting because i don't think it changed i think he spoke about it later in his career and still kind of held it in high regard and um I, 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 my whole thing with the, the discussion about like films like standing the test of time or like only being relevant in their time is, um, I think, I think there's like a, a, a good and bad side to it. Mm-hmm. I, I think a film should first and foremost speak to its times. I think there's two layers to a film and one is like speak to your times, like do something that like only can be done in your times, push the boundaries in your times. And that's where the film will be dated, you know, because if you're pushing stuff in your time, that stuff will become the, you know, become the new norm or, you know, you'll mm-hmm. influence people and then it won't be pushing the boundaries anymore. But I think where, where faces or something still ha- like holds up to me is that the, there's the universality and the themes there. The, it, it's trying to tackle humanity. It's trying to look at like people in a grander sense and people haven't changed. You know, people, you know, how we connect, how we associate with the world has altered a lot, but I don't think we've changed much overall. You know, I I don't think I think we still have all the same anxiety and self-doubt and, you know, self-criticism yeah. and 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 like love and hate for each other. And I think that's where a film for me will become like Something like, I don't know, like an old silent movie or something that, you know, something I really appreciate, like an old Charlie Chaplin movie, but it just doesn't like do anything for me emotionally. And whereas Faces to me feels like one of the greatest movies, in my opinion, because it was both revolutionary and its time and it spoke to humanity in a, in a eternal way. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. What do we all give it at a 10 or five or whatever? I gave it. I'll, I'll go first. I gave. I give it a five out of five. It's one of my Bam. favorite movies, especially on a rewatch. Uh, I lo- I loved it more the second time and the third and fourth time. It's just kind of reaffirming that belief. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go quite that high, but I, I yeah. This is uh, it's a great movie made by a great filmmaker. I mean, Casavetes is pretty revered. You know, he, his movies are definitely worth checking out. At least a few more. Um, I still need to see Woman Under the Influence. I'd give mm. this four out of five, mm-hmm. which I think is good. It might go up. I, I could see it going up to four and a half out of five. Yeah, definitely. It's a good movie for sure. Okay. It's like really important. And like, you know, there's like a million other movies we, like we mentioned that like in, it have influenced, you know, this movie influenced them. 
uh like clerks even you know stuff with mm. stuff like that <laughs> even anything improv heavy you know like scorsese stuff and yeah it, it's a it's a good watch definitely check it out yeah for me it's kind of a a high three star just verging on a three and a half um yeah i, I appreciate it and was picking up on a lot of things you're saying and just the the creative way it is exploring those themes and the, the honesty behind it and just the unique nature of, of pushing the envelope and doing things that are the inverse of like the hollywood system and everything that represents i do love all of that but yeah i'm just not as ent- entertained as well mm-hmm. Mm. came after it, what it inspired what was birthed from it um but i'm curious to check out some other stuff based on your descriptions of this and mm. yeah, yeah i have a lot of respect for it. yeah i'm right with you uh high six out of ten i feel like i got a lot out of it from the ideas that it's going for and the intentional decisions that were made in this film and what that says about the filmmaker you know, in the state of the film industry, et cetera, you know, the time period got a lot out of that. But in terms of like, I don't know, narrative characters, or I guess just entertainment, I can't deny that I was uh, <laughs> in your boat, Alex, <laughs> very sleepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you for sharing it with us. And it was great to hear you uh, talk about it. Yeah, yeah. the context is yeah. awesome. Yeah, I love yeah. a good excuse to talk about him. I, I really admire Cassavetes. And um, before we get into the questions, I just want to point out that uh, I was opening up that uh, that Roger Ebert review of Faces, and on his fucking mm. website, I like I just got like one of the worst like f- fucking fake virus pop up things ever. <laughs> like, it was like a pretending to be a Mac John McAfee or whatever thing. It was pretending to be oh, that, yeah. and oh, then yeah, it like yeah, yeah. it made a pop up, and then it went full screen, and it started making beeping noises saying like you have like six viruses on your computer and we're like what the fuck mm-hmm. and i had to do my like control alt delete and task manager that shit in the middle of this conversation i didn't make any noises but like i just wanted to express that because that was really <laughs> fun. that was scary and now i guess like yeah, it's okay, really gone to hell since yeah he died. word to everybody listening to this <laughs> yeah. do not go on rogerebert.com without a fucking ad blocker holy shit that's unacceptable <laughs> that's ridiculous like yeah jesus yeah they don't even know probably yeah oh. Thanks for giving it a try. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where anytime it's like a, an auteur, you know, pushing these boundaries, it's like Marmite for me. It's either this this is like life changing. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. or or it's like hard to stomach at times. Or or uh, yeah, I totally get that. We had the, the a similar kind of conversation when we watched that like six hour movie, the Saint sh- Tango, or whatever. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and Dillman as well. Where John Dillman, yeah, yeah, Gene Dillman. Oh god, that one. When it's, it's like three the point long. of the, it's like a, it's like a really strong artistic statement, and it's just like, mm-hmm. how much entertainment do you get from that? Yeah, even though still respecting it, you know what I mean? Yeah, so much to talk about though. <laughs> With that, I have a love for like some slow cinema, but I, I definitely feel similarly when the slowness is the point, you know, or it's hard to stomach, but. I guess with I guess Cassavetes doesn't quite hit that like Satan Tango yeah. or like no, no he, it. his movies yeah, are short. A runtime he, he, yeah. he talks he talks a lot of shit on entertainment, but somebody like me who's hyper interested in humans, I think his stuff is inherently entertaining just because he does such a good job showing humans. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, 
Let's do some questions from the Sardonicast community. If you want to leave your own questions first to answer in future episodes, head over to the subreddit where there's a suggestion thread. AV Center staff member two is going to start us off. Since you are reviewing Matrix 4 this episode, what is the best fourth installment in a franchise? Shrek 4. Uh, not too many to pick up. <laughs> Shrek 4. I'd it say, was better uh, than Mad the third. Max, probably. It's a good one. It's a good one. What'd you mm-hmm. say, Alex? Yeah, Shrek 4 is good. I said Mad Max, uh, Fury Road. Oh, if... Uh, what do, what do yeah. we call fourth, I guess? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, yeah, if it I counts, I would... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd put that. It's like a reboot. Would it be uh, Phantom Menace or A New Hope? Because if we're going chronologically... Ooh, yeah. Uh, New Hope is quite good, it's but it's technically the, the first. In- okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'd say Phantom yeah, Menace yeah. is the fourth, the fourth one. Installment yeah. <laughs> they opened up a can of worms so with that. Phantom Menace, okay. <laughs> no, yeah, cool. I love Phantom Menace. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fourth. Like, how many franchises make it to four? Even you know, it's like mm-hmm. I guess Harry Potter, Goblet of Fire. Quite a few. Yeah. I've like pulled yeah. a list up. It's like The Hobbit. Mission Impossible. Yeah, is Jurassic Return of the World. King the fourth installment because Ralph Bakshi did his Lord of the Rings? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's the unexpected journey. That's the fourth the, yeah. in the Peter Jackson <laughs> Mission the Impossible extended 4. edition of. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I don't know. I'd say Mission Impossible Four, and yeah, Mad Max is a good one. Hmm. I feel like I might be like just fucking blanking on something that I'm gonna kick myself over later, but that's what yeah. I thought at first too. But going through like these lists of fourth movies, it seems to just be kind of a trend. I always, you know, ones. sometimes I go for lists. I'm like, okay, what what are some lists of these things that I'm like might be blanking on one. Lists are fucking unhelpful because they're written by people that just like don't watch the same movies as me. <laughs> you True. know, I just they're always so unhelpful when I try to. When I try to have yeah. an answer to one of these questions, like, I don't know, there's some, uh, think about like fucking horror franchise. Those go up to, to like 10. Saw, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Friday the 13th. How, how is Saw 4? I can't remember which one. Saw 4 was is. bad. <laughs> it wasn't <Yeah>. great. <laughs> I feel like 4 is a tough number because at that point, it has yeah. to be dragging on the franchise, you know? Yeah, we've because, broken like, the trilogy. Anything beyond a trilogy is like, has to be forced in a way, unless it was planned like Harry Potter or something to be like, you know, a yeah. series. Yeah, it's fine if it's got a book. Even a trilogy is hard to do. Trilogies are like yeah, impossible. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. yeah, normally, well, the, yeah, actually, no, every sequel is uh, just an opportunity for a huge pitfall. Oh, shit. I'm going to be seeing Jackass 4 oh, in Vegas. Well, that's got potential. I got my tickets already, actually. Oh, cool. That would be fun to see, though. Yeah. <laughs> Are we all going to see it before next episode while we're... That'll, that'll yeah, make I'll the list. It. Yeah, Ralph, you're going to see Jackass 4 before... I, mean, I don't know what I'll ch- say yeah, about I'll it. I'll probably but... see it. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. We can talk Is about Spike it. Jones directing? No, he never... Di- <laughs> no, uh, he's, he's always, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, hanging out with it. them. Fucking oh, Jeff Tremaine is cool. the consistent director. He's always the like, old lady character, isn't he? That's, That's so right. weird. He's He like directed yeah. like you know really weird art films that he's like in Jackass. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, so yeah, you should ask this question next week because maybe Jackass 4 will be the best. Anyway, 
I guess next one. Let's do this one from Butter467. With the recent announcement of Chicken Run 2 and that the two main voice actors are being replaced. Oh, did you not hear about this? This is the first I'm hearing about this. Oh, okay. I can fill you guys in. I think it's a Netflix deal with Aardman to do Chicken Run 2 and a new Wallace and Gromit. I didn't know. I knew Wallace and Gromit was like big. I didn't know Chicken Run would have that same sort of like push for like 2022. Yeah. You know? Really? You're not a Chicken Run fan? No, yeah, I like yeah, Chicken, yeah. Chicken, Chicken Run. Chicken I remember Run. enjoying Bring it, it when I was younger. I just didn't realize it <laughs> okay. would have the name recognition to be able to build yeah, something exactly. off it's of like it the... in current year. <laughs> yeah, if the it... Matrix is pushing it, can Chicken Run get away with it? But The yeah. Matrix didn't make money. So... Yeah, true. The Matrix lost uh, money for Warner Brothers is what I read. Are they bringing back Mel yeah. Gibson in Chicken Run 2? Oh, I forgot <laughs> that he yeah, was there. Yeah, that's my, my question as well. <laughs> I, I highly doubt that. But the actual question was, um, how do you guys feel about characters that switch out voice actors? As certain popular characters like Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny have had multiple voice actors voice them. That's right, because they've announced that in Chicken Run 2, they've like recast the main actress because she's too old now or something. Well, I mean, they yeah. should have done it with fucking James Earl Jones john but i mean i don't know i think it, it's a question of like <laughs> are you reinterpreting the character because most of the time they just try to get somebody who could do a good impression yeah you know? parody, get yeah. billy west to do it yeah th- i guess that makes sense for mickey mouse or bugs bunny if a character is like around for a century you're obviously gonna have to recast them yeah, the character of the brand character is gonna be yeah I mean, a voice actor just puts on a voice. I mean, that voice it's is like, like yeah, you the, just have any character who, or any character actor imitate it, you know? Yeah. Peter and, uh, Salas, who voiced Wallace and Wallace and Gromit, he, he died a few years ago, so they're going to have to recast him. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, what, at a certain point, what can you do? You got to, if, if you're trying to continue the same character and have some consistency from one film to the next, I guess, you know, like a, a yeah. company... When there's money behind it, they're not going to want to like change <laughs> the character. They're going to want to try to keep it, you know, as similar as possible. To yeah. some degree, they're going to try to keep it the way that people are familiar with it. So there's only so much you can do. The brand lives on forever, but the actors die. <laughs> so. And Chris Pratt's going to do such a good job as Mario. We're going to want yeah. everyone recast. And Garfield. Yeah, oh, he can be that. Wallace. There you go. You just solved it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, Chris they Pratt's solved it. Fucking <laughs> and Chris Pratt as the chicken. Charlie Day. <laughs> Chris Pratt, it's a me, a Mario. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm very curious about that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's. It depends on what the reasoning is for changing them. It, you know, in The Lion King 2019, they kept James Earl Jones, even though he couldn't voice act anymore and then they replaced other actors that could still voice act and it's like okay well the fuck (laughs) yeah anyway yeah well you discovered how deep you can go with the whole lion king 2019 so i know i know (laughs) (laughs) all right let's do this one from jimmy ford with the release of season two of Euphoria, there's a conversation being held about teen dramas and the moral responsibility of depicting underage characters. How do you feel about the portrayal of teenage characters going through heavy themes such as sex, drugs, and violence? Do you guys believe it is exploitation or could border on being exploitative, even if the actors are adults and if the show slash movie is good? Or are people kind of overreacting? Sorry for the loaded question. I don't know. Isn't the age rating on that show like... 
mature <laughs> anyway. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. They're all adults. Like, put yeah. a fucking, if you want your kid to not watching, to be watching mature shows, then put the fucking content filter on your Xbox mm-hmm. or whatever, your smart TV. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, this isn't yeah. a new thing to have this. Well, I didn't realize Euphoria has this whole reputation for being like pushing the, the line in terms of, you know, the extreme content and stuff. Maybe mm-hmm. it just isn't less shocking because I'm like from Europe and the stuff on TV is mm. kind of <laughs> yeah, it's been a fucking, bit more explicit and weird. It's HBO it's also, thing. like <laughs> you know, like yeah. Sopranos and shit. Like it does, you should be able to write things about like younger characters, yeah, and and still have like a mature show. I gu- I guess the uh, the problem is that it's like they're like underage characters and you're seeing them naked and in a sexualized light and you know it's very i haven't seen euphoria but my understanding is most of the scenes aren't intended to be sexy you know there is is a more dark uh look at it and i i go back and forth because i think it is a little weird at times i'm like it's strange to like be like oh these are kids but they're not because it's actually a 20 year old because then you're acknowledging that complain everyone has with the show that the people look too old to play their parts you know mm. so so there's like why not just make the show about college students or something i think the controversy yeah. right now is more so about like leaving an impression on younger people to be like oh i want to be like rue i'm gonna do a bunch of drugs or whatever oh it's for mm. the kids so yeah I, I think kids. that's like, that's the complaint that i've been right? hearing is oh, like, shut up <laughs> yeah like kids are doing drugs no, yeah, now just people kids they weren't just doing like, drugs yeah, before right. euphoria and now they're doing drugs people are fucking stupid. yeah, yeah like, i don't think media ever influences people in that way you know it's the same violent you know, video games cause violence thing. I th- it's well, like- I, I do think midi- media does influence people. I think that there are a certain amount of kids that will watch Rue yeah. uh, do drugs and be like, I'm going to take fentanyl now. But there's also a certain amount of adults that watch like The Wolf of Wall Street and they're like, I'm, gonna, you know, or like yeah. any mobster movie or anything and be like, I want to be like that guy. Like, yeah, I think it's a deep, a deeper problem of like parenting and education and not necessarily the types of fictional media exactly. that people consume it's about how people interpret them and how people engage with them like that's a problem and you don't solve that problem by just banning certain forms of media and saying you can't make uh-huh. things in that way that's not how you solve the problem yeah yeah i guess my my uh point is that like the the people wouldn't like the person who would watch euphoria then take fentanyl is probably already in an environment with a parenting you know mm-hmm. situation yeah, there's, that has there's worse has problems pushed them for that person. already really close to doing this like euphoria would have to be the straw that broke the camel's back it wouldn't exactly. take somebody from a pure upbringing with no access to drugs yeah. and push them to suddenly do drugs you know yeah parents would be looking for someone to blame so they choose the show media could nudge people who are already close to doing something i don't think it it could completely alter someone you know and i guess that's mm-hmm. the way the media is depicting it now that like good innocent children will watch euphoria then start doing bad things you know i don't yeah. think that's gonna happen <laughs> yeah yeah it's dumb satanic panic mm-hmm. brainwashing yeah i understand i understand where people are coming from in terms of like a moral responsibility but yeah i i think that a much more dangerous show for children was 13 reasons why because that was aimed at children it wasn't as content heavy like it wasn't as explicit it was aimed at children and it glorified suicide <laughs> like ew. yeah much less tasteful in its depiction yeah for... it, it was like hey hey children who are thinking about committing suicide 
this is your show. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, everyone will feel really sorry for you and you'll be like omniscient and everybody will be, you know, really concerned about blah, blah, blah. blah. You'll be held up as like a god. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but I, I think there, <laughs> I think that suicide rates went up <laughs> after that show uh, was released, right? Like that, that actually had some I'm pretty sure real like world impact. So I'm not going to pretend like media doesn't influence people, especially children, especially like really hormonal, hormonal, like figuring out your life, maybe depressed sort of thing. So there's, I mean, yeah, be conscious about what the media that you're putting out there and how people might perceive it. But Euphoria is not like a kid's show. (laughs) Like, so Mm. fuck off, right? Like, yeah. No, it really isn't aimed yeah. at kids at all. Yeah, it's an HBO show. It's like it's the same channel as the fucking Sopranos. Yeah, <laughs> boardwalk yeah, empire. Don't... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, there's some people who just have like they don't have their own issues figured out, and they need to take it out on a show. But, but like, just yeah. they don't even watch. It's just like it's there's too much nudity, it's too much violence, or whatever. It's just like okay, but there's people who are like fully formed human beings who can watch that and like just watch it as art and view it and move on <laughs> and like just mm-hmm. you know share their experience online or whatever mm-hmm. yeah it, it's pretty dumb i yeah. mean i don't think most people watch this shit or like influenced to like become fucking drug addicts yeah. or like murderers or like it, it's the sopranos didn't make me want to join the mafia <laughs> well you're already in the mafia so exactly exactly <laughs> i'm already in the mafia <laughs> <laughs> i mean like the creator of euphoria has been really explicit about how the stories he writes especially within euphoria are essentially just him talking about his own previous life experiences growing up and being addicted and you know like struggles that he was having he seems like a really woke guy just from like (laughs) just from watching his movies and like his interviews he seems very woke and it's like (laughs) i mean like like, he's i don't don't, don't think he's talking about his own i don't think he's like a bad guy (laughs) right i just he seems like a fine like guy like i'm just saying people should be able to express that part of themselves like if he's doing that and he feels like catharsis or you know like some form of therapy doing that like at this rate no one should be making shows because everyone's like flawed in some way yeah Mm -hmm. he seems fine it's better than malcolm and marie probably although i'm I'm probably not going to watch euphoria and it's full i mean it's good it's really it's much more yeah well shot and well directed than malcolm and marie yeah that that seems like that it definitely seems that way yeah (laughs) have you seen malcolm and marie well no i haven't I, I oh, think I listened okay. to your guys' discussion, or you had talked about it, but I've never yeah, watched it. We were a little light on it, I think. A little, like, easy on it. I was, yeah, it was fine. It didn't, you know, <laughs> it didn't, like, hurt me. But Euphoria seems to have, like, more of an impact, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, it was, it was just kind of lame. Yeah, like, a couple arguing. Not in a good way. Not, like, fences. Where it was, like, all mm-hmm. improv. It, it seemed like it wanted to mm-hmm. be fences, but it was, like... Like, completely failing at it, you know? It's, like, totally misfiring. We can do a few more questions. Okay, let's do this one from Andy the Drew Bear. The common critique is show, don't tell. However, this rule is often broken in musicals, or really anything that has an occasional song. The characters often literally narrate their thoughts and feelings through song. Is this a problem? Are there any examples, or any other examples, where a story can tell rather than show that you wouldn't critique? Yeah, I think musicals do get kind of like a pass when it comes to that. But I don't think that show don't tell is like an actual rule that should be applied to everything anyway. Like, I don't believe in blanket rules for filmmaking or storytelling. 
you know, when people mm. bring up the kind of rule like show, don't tell, it's the same thing as I before E except after C. You can find a billion, like, weird neighbor, you know, like, you can mm. always find examples of, like, oh, those are real words, but they didn't use that rule. And the same thing with the show, don't tell rule. Like, you can find a billion examples of, like, filmmakers who are able to tell and not show, and it still worked. So, I don't know. It's Don't treat those rules as, like, gospel is what I would say. I think if you're going to even, like, begin to approach something like a Christopher Nolan movie and like it, you have to love telling. You know, you have to love somebody who just tells yeah. you everything. And there, there's filmmakers that make an art out of telling. And, you know, uh, you know, exposition, like, is their language. And I think that's Christopher Nolan to the T. Tarantino. Yeah, Tarantino. I think Tarantino operates with a little more subtext, at least. Mm -hmm. Christopher Nolan's pretty well telling you the rules. You know, he's like, it's like you're sitting down to play his board game and he's telling you how to play it. You know? <laughs> yeah. He's a dungeon master. He's the, he's the dungeon master. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think any blanket rules are very valuable. There's a lot of like aesthetic rules that I think kind of limit people, you know, like as far as shooting, like the 180 degree rule and stuff, people are very mm -hmm. rigid with stuff and they get more worried about like the hyper specific rules rather than like yeah. what's best for their Feel scene. your it's way like, through if, it. it. Yeah. And if what's best for your scene is explaining to the audience something that would be hard to, for you to communicate otherwise, or, or maybe the fact that the character is explaining is kind of, you know, subtextual in and of the itself, point, you know, yeah. you could, yeah, the point. Sure. And, uh, the, I don't know if you guys have seen Umbrellas of Cherbourg. No. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a, no. it's a Jacques Demy musical. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the whole thing is sung kind of like Les Mis. It's like literally all every line of dialogue is sung. And they're literally just saying what they're doing. And it's a like it's a beautiful movie. It's like I'm walking to the shop. I'm going to see the love of my life or whatever they're singing about. Yeah, that's on my watch list already. And it's just such a beautiful movie. And uh, I think the simplicity and like the naivete of it kind of mm -hmm. turns around by the end of it. And I think, you know, there's ways that like telling can be both an effective form of storytelling and an effective form of subversion or an effective form of... um of uh you know communicating intentionally badly or communicating intentionally simply mm -hmm. yeah i don't think there's a problem in musicals it's just part of the format it's consistent it's something something like a, a show don't tell rule is it's more of a when, when you just when you break the rule and and you're trying to establish something like a matrix universe and that's where you're kind of expecting to to be shown more than told a lot of the time because you know it's like a big big blockbuster they have the the money available to show you all these wacky visuals and things you'd want to see but that's when those kind of rules uh, make sense to me but when you're trying to rigidly apply them to everything blanketly like a musical like no it's, it's fine doesn't like the, the the power of the music and the song is what and, and how that works mm -hmm. in the narrative is is more important than just is this like ruining the consistency of the narration or whatever it's, yeah let's have, it's really not a problem let's have a musical where like it's not a window into the character's mind and they're just t singing about something random like i don't know like what's the solution no musicals yeah it's basically just like an inner monologue or narration but they're yeah. singing it i don't really see a problem with that yeah mm. you can still show as you're telling too yeah yeah it's a blanket rule it's not 
you can't apply it to everything. Yeah. I think like you can show and tell, like even in Christopher Nolan's films, like I think what separated, I, I talked about this before, but like what separated a lot of my experience with Inception versus Tenant and how the exposition was handled in both films is that in Inception, there was always like a visual accompaniment. Like they went to the dream as they were explaining this. And Leo DiCaprio was like, see that over there? This is this happening. Or when they were talking about like the the paradox of like the stairs, they showed the visual of that. Where in like Tenant, there was a lot of explaining without showing it. And that was like, really like, give, talks give me an example. Yeah, a lot of walking and talking. It's like, you're just walking and talking. And it's like, fuck, I don't give a shit. Mm. Right. So I, yeah, I exactly. think that. Yeah, it's something like Inception. You can do both at the same time. You can show and tell. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think two of the most egregious examples where telling bothered me is like, I think like David Lynch's Dune is a great example. All yes, that like, yes. all that <laughs> internal monologue is just so insufferably pointless. Like you get what they're saying without having to hear it. And mm-hmm. then uh, where I get lost with telling is that exposition heavy walk and talk that you see. Uh, but more so like in like mob movies and stuff. Like when mm-hmm. I'm trying to track like who hates who or who's like after who. Yeah. And instead of like communicating it effectively, they just like say a lot of names and you don't know like i i get lost a lot in movies <laughs> where like people are putting out hits on somebody and i'm like wait who who wants who for what reason and i, th- I think uh-huh. i think it's just a question of how well you do it you know i think it's that's what what the rule misses yeah. i think the rule stems from a lot of people doing it badly and it's just like you could do it well you know you just there's w- ways to marry it with showing, like you were saying with Inception, and there's ways to just tell, but in a interesting way, you know, write good dialogue, write, write effective uh, dialogue that like communicates what you want to say. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I think we can do like one more question. Okay. Let's do this one from uh, Schnetzelst. What are your guys' opinions on Cisco and Ebit? You guys have big dicks, and I love the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> have big dicks. Is that true? It's true. Um, they're good. The Cisco and Ebert are good. They fought a lot. They had a lot of conflict off the set. Because they were too... I guess they had, like, conflicting egos or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they made a good show. They made a good review show. With a lot of funny discussions. You can yeah. find them on YouTube. There's a lot of funny discussions, yeah. And they're quick. I'm more familiar with Ebert than I am with Siskel. Siskel wasn't around as long. And, Same. you know, most of what I learned about him was through, like, the documentary, um, what was it called? Mm-hmm. Like, some yeah, Life that too. something? I don't know. I, it was on one of my mm-hmm. lists. But... Yeah, I, I can see the poster in my mind. Yeah. yeah, there was a Roger Ebert documentary that was really good. Life Itself, I think it was called. Yeah. I think that's what it's called. There's another movie yeah. called that I know, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, two movies. Yeah, that's what it's title. called. Yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah. yeah, like I, I think it's really cool that they were able to televise and sort of almost like mainstream the world of like criticism of film and like mm-hmm. whether whether or not mm-hmm. people take that as like for purpose of recommendation or for purpose of like I don't know like essay style. Uh, trying to understand the themes of the film or like doing like a deeper dive. What I've most appreciated about Roger Ebert um, were always the film, like art house films where he thought it was as great as me. And it's not about like, Oh, validating my own perspective, but um, something like his essay on like the white ribbon. I'm like, Oh wow. That helped me to understand my own position a bit better, especially because I was a bit younger when I read that. Um, it's all about like, mm-hmm. you know, everything, in humanity kind of 
is collaborative and builds off of like other people whether we're talking about uh john cassavetti's influence on other people helping them to understand like oh there are there are other things i could be doing with film like there's other avenues you know just outside mm. my peripheral or in, in my peripheral or whatever um and i think in that sense uh critics can be really helpful um i think i think some people might have like a negative kind of straw man caricature of like criticism whether it be youtube critics or like established um you know print media critics where people will say like oh you just you just believe that about a movie because this person said it. it's like no you can still you can still look at someone's opinion that agrees with you and you know appreciate one part of what they said and be like oh i agree with that and not agree with everything else they said and i guess the last thing i know mm -hmm. i'm on a bit of a ramble the last thing i want to say about like ebert is i find it like almost more amusing that the conversation about ebert because he is the <laughs> the film critic that is like the popular you know like he's the name film critic yeah and he's, he's built such a yeah, brand the, for the himself it, that yeah. like people are still using his name on rogerebert.com other reviewers are using the roger you know you see the review 10 out of 10 or four stars by rogerebert.com but it's a different critic i find that kind of amusing mm -hmm. but it's funny that yeah that's funny everybody knows that like he said some things that are, you know, like video games can't be art and like just everybody has something that they'll disagree with him on. But it's so funny that he's just essentially I always forget he said that. he's so high status and so highly revered by people that his words can be used to like weaponize someone's argument. His words can be used to like justify arguments and be like, oh, well, Roger Ebert said this or, oh, what? I can't say that. Roger Ebert said that. And I find myself doing it sometimes, too. When people say like, you can't criticize plot yeah. holes in a film. You're not a real critic if you do that. And then I'm like, well, look at Roger Ebert's review on High Tension. He literally said there was a plot hole so big that you could drive a truck through it. Like he's calling out plot holes in that film. It's like, what? I can't do that. So it's funny that mm. like myself included, like people use his highly revered status is just like, okay, well, what is this conversation even? It's, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about in my opinion. Yeah. It's the, it's the age old validation versus just perspective thing. You know, who is like, what are, what are people going to him for? What are people going to Siskel and Ebert for? And I, I think it's the same with YouTube critics. We're seeing the same thing today where people kind of homogenize sometimes behind a singular critic that they like mm -hmm. the most. But I, I, I do think their value outweighs their, like, you know, their, uh, their, their negativity or oh, negative impact. Yeah. I, they, 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 I wasn't even trying to imply they had a negative impact by saying that. No, no, absolutely. Uh, just that I, I think that bringing film criticism into the spotlight and ha even just encouraging, even if they encourage yeah. just like a thousand people to look at films more critically, I think that's a great thing yeah. they did, you know, and, um, yeah, I've re I've read a lot of Roger Ebert reviews, like you said, that they, they help you appreciate a movie you already like more. You know, they, they they give you a new perspective on something you didn't like. They give you know, he's just really uh, succinct and well spoken, and I think that's why he reached his iconic, legendary yeah. status. He was a great yeah. writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'll often go back and read reviews after you know checking something out. Yeah, there's a reason that those names are what they are, and yeah, it's like YouTube before YouTube. It's the yeah, it was Sardonicast before Sardonicast. <laughs> yeah, so true. <laughs> there was no Sardonicast. It's like a Tarantino movie before Tarantino became Tarantino. Yeah, <laughs> it's the Dark Solved Souls the of movie <laughs> reviewing. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's <was> difficult. <laughs> Nostalgia critic. Yeah.
It was the wall review before the wall. Yeah. <laughs> this is the wall before the wall. <laughs> Open the doors for the wall review. <laughs> this, yeah, this, you see the the meme of like the dominoes and they get bigger, just like fucking yeah. Cisco and Ebert, and then nostalgic, nostalgic critic the wall critic. review at the end. Yeah, um, nostalgic critic. Yeah, he's very influenced by Roger Ebert. A lot of, there's a lot of I mean, it opened the door like, to you know, like, you know, there's a channel awesome iceberg now. It doesn't even. It do- oh, that's kind of funny. Yeah, those memes are kind of funny. It doesn't even matter if somebody yeah, was, was individually influenced by like even Roger Ebert specifically, but like the fact that they were able to get a show on television that encouraged people to look at films in a more critical way, as you were saying, Joel, where it's like getting mm-hmm. people to you know view something as not just like popcorn entertainment and just think you know explore why you like a film what makes a film great instead of just like a passive experience make it a more active engaging experience people always say shit like uh like films are a a passive experience you don't use your brain during it but you but you do when you're reading a book and sure there's like some merit to that because you have to interpret a lot and use your own imagination in a book more than you might have to in a film but i kind of like it's it's as much as you put into it it's as much as you are willing to engage with it like i don't view films in that way i like to think about Mm -hmm. the films that i'm watching i like to think behind uh, the meanings of the films i like to think about the actors the production like the director like i i love to be constantly engaged about a film that my favorite films are the ones that i have the most to think about during them so yeah i just i i like the encouragement of films being thought of behind what they are on a surface level and they help to do that really Mm -hmm. so and I, all of my favorite films kind of make me confront myself in a way. Yeah. And I think that's like the, the, mm-hmm. the hardest thing to do with artwork is like, you know, seeing yourself in it and like, you know, reflecting on, yeah. you know, some things that maybe you're not so good at or things that like, uh, the characters do that. You're like, Oh, I've done something like that, yeah. you know, introspection. And, um, introspection for sure. For sure. And, um, I think it, when I hear like that quote that books are more like active than film, I'm like, I I, I can't help but go in my mind into defensive mode just because yeah. I love films. But I'm just like I'm like, are these is that quote coming from somebody who's like you know on their phone during a movie or something or you <laughs> yeah? Because <laughs> yeah, I'm just like I'm just like, how are you engaging yeah. with films? Because unless you're only watching stuff that is deliberately popcorn entertainment. Yeah. It's like films is, are showing you like humans and it's like how how detached are you from the humans on the screen that it isn't making you challenge yourself you know mm-hmm. how detached are you from like from like the you know it, it's like the uh Charlie Kaufman I love the uh universality and the specific that he said yeah, and, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of anything it's like everything has this universal quality if you if you think you could like if you're watching a movie and you think you're totally detached from any of the greed or, you know, whatever you see the characters go through, it's like, maybe you, maybe you're just not mature enough or ready to, you know, you know, yeah. see yourself mm-hmm. in the, in the work you experience. Well, you know? pe- people only use 10% of their brain is what I was told. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, well, that's you, right. You, you gotta take a pill. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Limitless. Lucy. You gotta be Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Oh yeah, they did two movies. They did Lucy, Lucy and because well, it's based Lucy. off of just Limitless. like a fucking dumb <laughs> meme that wasn't real. It's like if you cut your 
itself. If your blood's blue underneath, it's only when it turns to oxygen, it turns red. Yeah. There's no, there's no scientific reason why a bumblebee should be able able to fly. It's just, it's one of those like like you don't know what you're yeah. talking about. Stop saying things that are made up, please. <laughs> How did these get popular before the internet, man? Anyway, I guess that about does it for questions. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, thank you for being a great guest. I guess I got to uh, recommend a film, and I've been yeah, so sure, fucking busy that I I have a list on my phone, but I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, I didn't not, really. It's uh, not eight hours long, is it? What have you got for us? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. okay. That's good. <laughs> I, I how many eight hour films can there possibly be that I would recommend? <laughs> there might be a twelve hour one. I, I bought Berlin Alexander Platts on the Criterion Collection mm-hmm. in high school and I still haven't watched it because it's fifteen hours. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's uh Oh man. <laughs> long movies are hard. I'm thinking uh no matter what I do, I wanna do something like a bit nostalgic here. Um let's uh okay. I haven't seen. Fuck! I'm looking at my list. I'm like, I gotta pick it right. I gotta pick it right. I, I, you know what? I is kind of funny. There's movies that I want to recommend, but I'm like, if they release this on 4K UHD like three months later, mm. I'm just gonna be so pissed. Like, there, it's just a regular Blu-ray right now. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, if I haven't seen it in five years, I want to see it again in 4K. Anyway, I'll stop rambling. Let's just pick one. Uh, would you hate me if I? recommended a film that is like should probably be during Halloween but I want to recommend it anyway. <laughs> nah. Let's fucking watch The Thing, the 1980 All right. Oh, cool. Like I I'm love that movie thing. so much and yeah. I haven't seen the 4K Blu-ray and I own it. So mm-hmm. All right. Cool. Yeah, I'm like Awesome. I think it's my favorite horror movie honestly, but yeah, I haven't seen Hi. it in a few years, so... Okay, cool. The Thing, 1982. I heard recently that on the commentary for that movie, uh, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell are just, like, shitting on it the whole time. They're like, I'm not sure how anecdotal that was, but I heard it in passing. I'm like, that's really okay, funny. And, investigate. <laughs> wow. They're just like, oh, I don't funny. know why we made this. They made, this like, years. a great <laughs> movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're shitting all yeah. over. <laughs> all right, so if you don't want to be spoiled... By for sorry, if you don't want to be spoiled for the thing by John Carpenter, nineteen eighty two, uh, watch it before the next episode. These episodes come out every two weeks. You can listen to them early by going to sardonicast.com, signing up for premium. Two dollars a month, you'll get these early as they're edited. Also, patreon.com slash sardonicast. Also, don't confuse this film with the twenty what, twenty eleven remake or reboot or whatever uh that's a different film oh, yeah 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 that's not what i'm it's recommending the for the podcast also i guess there's like a 1950s version i haven't seen maybe i'll check that one out for context i haven't seen that actually but oh, yeah, the yeah. recommendation 1982 so uh make sure that that's the one we will be talking about for sure awesome all right thank you so much for joining that was awesome thanks for being on here yeah thanks for insight yeah thanks for having me it was yeah. great yeah thank you yeah, it was fun continue thanks. to do what you do Making making art. Um, Right back at you. Thank you. Uh, Bye bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye bye, folks. Bye. 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 Bye.